welcome to episode 177 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke and we are back for part 2B, as promised, of our series looking at the WWF in 1993. And joining me for this look uh, at the quarter two of 1993, as he did for 1990, for 91, for 92, and obviously as you heard for uh, part 1 and part 2A, for 1993 as well, the great Kyle Ross over in Cleveland, Ohio. Kyle, are you ready Talk about the end of Hulkamania. Oh, I think I'm ready, Liam. I think I'm <laughs> ready. We've been waiting so long to talk about this. At least, uh, you know, some people have. You know, we, we went into great detail how the old Hulkster was running on fumes in part 2A, and now we get to put him to bed, I suppose. And, and for all you listeners out there who always think, oh, you and Liam are always so negative about everything, we're going to be quite positive for the first part of this show, I do believe. I'm going to actually be pretty positive for most of this show, I think, to be perfectly honest. Look yeah. out here, everybody. I, Look out. Th- th- there's a smile on my face as I think about uh, this period of time in the WWF, and I think that there's going to be a lot of positivity today. So, <laughs> having said that, with us beaming and ready to go, uh, there are some housekeeping notes that we have to tackle, because obviously we leave no stone unturned, as we said at the start of Part 2A, and we're doing the same thing now. We don't. Uh, and, you know, we always go back uh, and... and- you know, fact check anything that maybe, you know, on the previous show that we were wishy-washy on, not 100%. We talked about Jim Duggan's exit from the WWF Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, whether that was voluntary or not. Turns out it was. His contract was simply expiring and he just chose to walk. He obviously read the tea leaves. He was doing jobs, which was very uncommon for him on television. Usually, you know, when baby faces do jobs on TV, in Titan during this period, you you know what's coming. <laughs> They're moving yeah. down the card. It's over. Um, so so that's one thing. Also, you know, going back to uh, part one when we talked about the feud with Yokozuna, his wife was very much pregnant, so he's got a newborn at home. So I think yep. I, I think when where the business was going, how he was being used, his family situation, you know, it all just made sense that he's like, you know, peace out. I, I, I'm out of here. Uh, the repack report has chimed in with this nugget. <laughs> Liam, uh, what a beauty this is here. Let me bring this up for you. Okay. Virgil threw a chair at the Nasty Boys because the Nasties were calling Virgil Rodney King after SummerSlam 92. Oh, no. My response was, where did you hear that? (laughs) He says, Nails said it. (laughs) (laughs) Take that with a great assault, but... uh, (laughs) There's a tidbit that we don't know if it's verified. If it turns out to be incorrect, please send all your hate mail to the Repack Report, uh, my version of the Finkel Report. So those are some interesting tidbits. Um, the nasty what else? boys. Yeah, I'll tell you what, man. What an unceremonious. Who, they get into the fight. They're suspended. They never come back. Never got that tag title shot. We talked about it. So, uh, you know, don't forget when they got their ass kicked on the side of the road, too. Yeah. <laughs> Man, what a rough run that was for the Nasty Boys. Um, what else is here in the housekeeping uh, section? Why don't you talk about what we've got on tap for today here, Liam, and then um, and yeah, then we'll get at it. We will. So we we very much in uh, part 2A, for those of you who have not heard, and if you didn't, you can go back to Spotify, Podbean, iTunes, and check it out. I very much encourage everybody to do so. We talked about the first part that we want to talk about for the second quarter of 1993, predominantly looking at WrestleMania 9, the situation with Hulk Hogan, pretty much, uh, you know, stealing, in not so many words, the world title from Bret Hart and Yokozuna, the decision to kind of base things around Hogan and what was going on there, as well as the rest of WrestleMania. 
we are now getting ready to discuss the kind of second half of this quarter, which obviously talks, you know, delves into May, the King of the Ring, the pay-per-view, and as we mentioned, the fact that Hulk Hogan is no longer in this promotion. And this is something that's kind of been built in a strange sort of way since the very beginning of the series that means you started in 1990, where it was about Hogan trying, you know, the image, that, or at least perception, that Hogan was tired, played out, boring. They wanted to try a new Hulk Hogan, which uh, obviously yes. didn't pan out. And now here it is. All this time later, we have hit the point where it is time for the Hulk Hogan era of the WWF in its in its first one truly comes to an end. Obviously, he was gone at WrestleMania 8, but after King of the Ring 93, he is done for years with Vince. Yes, eight and a half to be exact. Now, you uh, mentioned there that part 2A predominantly was WrestleMania 9 fallout. It was almost exclusively WrestleMania 9 and yeah. its fallout. There was another tidbit in there, just want to double back. Um, where we were talking about who Hogan was celebrating with in the ring off air. Yes, we did verify it was Beefcake, Jimmy Hart, Randy Savage, and Vince McMahon. No yeah. Brett. No Brett. No Brett. Uh, Savage, you know, who who you know, presumably punched him in the face, uh, partying with him after the show. Who knows? Who knows where the truth yeah. uh, starts and ends there? Yeah, so you mentioned here on part 2B, we are going from WrestleMania 9 fallout to the King of the Ring and its subsequent fallout, Hulk Hogan's yeah. exit from the company. But before we get to that, Liam, we have to talk about Monday Night Raw. And mm -hmm. Monday Night Raw was a big talking point in part 1A of our 1993 series because that, you know, it was obviously created at the start of 93. We labeled it fairly so as the most significant change to WWF television in over six years at that time, it's the most significant change that ever took place. When you look yeah. back, some some have called it the longest running episodic show on television. Oh. Uh, so, <laughs> but but here we are after WrestleMania. Okay, we mentioned the high rating that the episode did with the Sherry Luna cat fight. But is it fair to say that Raw kind of sucked in April? It would in terms be of quality perspective. It would not only be fair, it would be understating how poor it was in April. This was a bad show in April. The, oh. uh, obviously, you mentioned some of the reasons why in part 1A with the uh, Mad Monk, sorry, Fire Ferguson push. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, they, they get out of the Manhattan Center for a little while and the atmosphere is a little different and it's not as focused coming out of WrestleMania. Um, and as we'll talk about, there's a lack of certain people on the show that feels that they should have a bit more of a prominent position um but yeah it, it, it's still it hasn't found itself yet throughout april it's still kind of trying to find what it is uh, when you strip it out of the manhattan center setting i feel yeah you talk about the show being unfocused i don't think this promotion and we talked no. a lot about it and the last show didn't really know what it was doing and you know leaving the manhattan center uh, that's a very good point because the atmosphere was such a big part we we talked so much about how that manhattan set, uh, center atmosphere was crucial to raw differentiating itself from other WWF programming at the time. Okay, so we're in agreement. Raw kind of sucks in April. And we must not be the only two people who thought that because they drew a couple low ratings to start May. After that really high one that they drew in April, ratings were down to start May. And perhaps it was in response to those low ratings, Liam, that Titan delivered one hell of an hour of television on May 17th. And that is where we are going to start part 2B proper. This is, of course, the episode where we get the one, two, three kid upsetting Razor Ramon and Marty Jannetty returning to beat Shawn Michaels for the Intercontinental title. Where would you like to start here, sir? Well, given the fact, let's go for the chronology of the matches themselves. Let's go, kid, and Razor to kick us off. 
Okay, so here's the setup for Kid and Razor for those who need a refresher. Uh, the Kid, Sean Waltman, had previously made a name for himself in Global, the GWF, as the Lightning Kid with a series of matches against Jerry Lynn. I was aware of him due to the ESPN show, so I knew who he was when he first showed up mm. on WWF television. That's interesting. I had, yeah, I had not seen his tryout matches until, you know, a couple of years ago, I guess. Uh, they were against Louis Spicoli. At the time, they were reported as being really impressive. I'm not sure if you have caught those, but he does the cannonball outside. I mean, that was like mind blowing. Oh, yeah. A dark match. Yeah. A I think the TV taping to see a guy do a cannonball off the top to the outside. Yeah, I've seen the match and uh, it's 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 very good. I can see why the stands of actually if you go into one of these shows where they're doing these TV tapings, I can imagine. <laughs> oh, this is pretty interesting. There's like a couple around this time where it's just like like Sabu gets one, doesn't he? Around around some uh, some point around here, like three ninety four. It's like what the fuck is that Sabu doing? You know, assigning moonsaults and such uh, in these dark matches. But yeah, so kid looks 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 very good. In his, in his tryout matches, and obviously he had built a reputation online that, you know, online fans, a much smaller percentage, certainly, of the total wrestling fan base back then. But people knew him. It wasn't just me. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, his debuts on TV, okay, he starts as the kamikaze kid, losing to Doink. That's on Raw. And then he's the cannonball kid losing to Mr. Hughes. This is despite still having L Kid on his tights. Yeah, with lightning all over. It's, that's Bush League. Come on. <laughs> I, I'm surprised they allowed that. That's just, it's, it's... That's very un-Vince-like. It is. The detail allow stuff. Him to, have, to, to allow him to have a name that was a name he used in a different promotion that he's not using here on his tights. Yeah, it looks a little messy. Okay. Now, despite those jobs, and they were just flat-out jobs, right? He was treated like a jobber. Oh, yeah. In, the, in those matches against... No Doink resistance against Hughes. Doink or Hughes. Dave Meltzer was very adamant in The Observer and assured everyone, most likely those negative Nancys on the internet, uh, that <laughs> Waltman is going to be the youngest and lightest pushed wrestler since national expansion. He was only 20 and, you know, like 200 pounds at this time. Yeah, which is, which is funny only because I remember reading the WF magazine. You can probably, uh, you'll be able to verify this, but I have a feeling that in Drift magazine, they did an interview with a kid near the end of 93, and he said he was, I'm sure that he said he was 23 in the magazine. Okay. okay. And it's always stuck um, in my mind because I know, I feel like I, I remember that number for whatever reason from when I was a kid. Well, here's the great thing. Um, you know, Dave was using a typewriter in 1993, as you know, to do The Observer. Uh, and the internet was not just one click away. So what do you say sh- uh, we look? Sean Waltman... I believe he was, was 20. Born- yeah, he was. He was born in 72. Yeah, he and was 20. Birth- and-, and his birth date, do we have an actual birth date here? It looks like we don't have a birth date. But he... It was July, uh- July, July 13th. So yeah, he was technically, he was 20 years old. Dave Meltzer tw- did his homework. Yes, he was correct. It was just like I said. It was just I find it strange that Drift Magazine exaggerated his age to make him older. Also, that's weird. Yeah, a good. You know what? That's a good point. I, you know, maybe they thought that twenty was too young. Yeah, I don't that's know. what I mean for the perception the of it. Yeah, I mean, look, as we'll get to later, they were writing fucking anything in that magazine during this period. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this one All right. last time Drift Magazine gets a, as Lord Al would say, a shellacking yeah. on the show. But, Look, there's no doubt about it that his look and his weight were like really stood out because you, you, they didn't push skinny guys like that on WF television. I mean, this was it's fucking Titan Sports, Liam. No. I mean, this is this, this is the roided up monster promotion where everyone's and a 300 pounder. 
That's right. And I remember in the Observer, there is some, whether it's a fan report or Meltzer saying it when there's a show, a house show where it's a kid versus like one of the Beverly's. Um, and there is somebody in the crowd who makes the comment, wow, you can tell the WF's gone a little bit downhill when this guy's made it in, you know, because they're Ooh. just so, they're so indoctrinated to big guys. And then here comes this skinny one, two, three kid. And uh, yeah, but again, yeah, on that show, he ends up winning the crowd over as well. So it's kind of the story of him. Sure, sure. And it, I think I've told the story perhaps on this program. Certainly I did on Top Rope Nation back in the day. Um, <laughs> when Cammy, my wife, first started watching wrestling, one of the first things she said was, didn't the wrestlers used to be bigger? <laughs> That's a, so, but I mean, it just shows what the what 80s WWF did to the mindset of the general public with what, you know, the look of a wrestler, quote unquote, should be. Yeah. Now, Razor Ramon has the look of a, a stereotypical wrestler at this time. And as we talked about going back to part one, he really didn't do much after the Rumble loss to Bret Hart. He was battling injuries at the mm. time. He, he had a fucked up knee. Uh, at WrestleMania 9, though, he got some cheers from the Las Vegas crowd and also got the first pinfall victory over Bob Backlund uh, in the WWF that Dave knew of going back to 1977. <laughs> yeah, quite the uh, quite the achievement, uh, and rightly so. Right guy wins. Yeah, and we just double checked this um, right before we went on the air at uh, at uh, historywwe and yeah, I mean, first of all, the people back when was working with in the <laughs> early half of '93, just dreadful. Damian Demento, the Repo Man, Papa Shango, <laughs> the one of the Be- Bo Beverly. Maybe it was yeah. Blake. I can't fucking remember. But yeah, so Razor gets a pinfall, and that's really all he had done. Yeah. So, you know, for Kid Razor, it just starts, there's nothing special to it whatsoever. Like Razor Ramon's out there, and he's just beating kids' ass. It just looks like another squash match. Yeah. And I want to say this before kicking it to you. I thought the layout of this match, the finish, and the announcing were all exemplary. Because for what they were doing, it set you up in the audience perfectly. There was no tell whatsoever that the kid was going to win here or this was anything other than a usual squash match. The announcers aren't really paying attention to it. Um, You know, they're talking about, you know, Razor's really kicking the kid's ass. The kid had lost twice already. So why don't you give your thoughts on the match here? An angle, Dave Meltzer said this, an angle he'd been waiting seven years to see and... By his count, it is the first jobber win in WWF history. I love this match. I love I, I this is this is so well done. The fact that, like you say, there are no tells. Even and this is actually a question. What do you think about the fact that they had the kid on the previous two weeks getting the ass kicking rather than showing up here for the first time? Oh, it's so much better. Yeah, I do too. Because it's you you set the expectation because again you, you had that anyway. Like you would get the jobber who would appear a couple weeks in a row and just take a battering and and. And then it's, you know, whatever. Then he disappears. Another one, rinse, repeat, who cares? The fact that he was there getting thrown around, they made like a passing comment about how, oh, he's got a different name this week or something like that. And that's the only, but they give it like so little dignity that you just think it's just another throwaway comment. Nothing to see here. It's such a good beating from Razor as well. And the crowd's into it. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and as we said, the man hands in the crowd likes Razor a lot. But well, let's talk. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Just, just yeah. Hammer, so. They're they're back in the Manhattan Center on May seventeenth for this hour. Yeah, 
and they pick, the, they, they pick the right crowd to do this show in front of. I'll say that um, mm-hmm. because they're into Razor all the way. But even when he moves and Razor hits the post and it's like, oh, you know, it's just like a kind of, oh, that's interesting. And then he just hits the moonsault out of nowhere. People go, oh, and then it's one, two, three. Yep. And that place just pisses themselves. A rare example where camera shots of the crowd really add to the scene. Yes. I adore this match. I think that the announcing afterwards is so good. Whoa, Razor! Razor missing. Boy, he really came in with that elbow. And I think Razor's dazed. Wait a minute. One, two, three. What is this? He got him. He got him. With just that, oh, he, oh my he God, didn't, yes. he didn't, I don't understand what's going on here. You got a fast count, and Savage is like, "Hey, you got beat, brother. That's it." And Razor's losing his mind. The crowd's losing their mind. Razor played it great. Kid running away. It just feels so because of the surprise, and because of how well it's done. The fact that it was a moonsault as well. I like the fact that it was a move that was just you know, something you didn't see that often. And then just mm-hmm. run, you know, the running up the steps, pumping his fists. Running away, it was. You could not have done this better. No, you couldn't have. And, you know, um, as soon as the ref counts three, Bobby Heenan starts yelling, what is this? What yeah. is this? Yeah. And then, yeah. And, and, and I think he starts yelling, he just beat Razor Ramon. He just beat Razor Ramon. And, yeah, Razor, after he loses, he goes out to the announce table, gets in Vince's face, which, if you're a smart fan, is really cool because it's like, you know, he's quite like, what are you doing to me, promoter? Yeah. And, you know, and, and then Macho's like, you got beat, brother. And then, and then yeah, Heaton's like, I'll try to be sympathetic to the cause. You know, let's talk about the finish because, yeah, it's great. It's just like this. It's how this kind of deal needs to be done where it's a flash pin and it's booked kind of fluky where, he, where the job guy, the supposed job guy, you know, hits the home run. You know, yeah. Razor, he makes the unforced error, you know, running his face into the post. The moonsault, what was great about the moonsault is like his knee hit Razor's in the face. Yeah. yeah, so that was great. So like you bought it as a potential shock finish. Yeah. I think to compare the two, if you compared something into the modern era, and there's there's other ways, it's exa- I'm going to harp on this point moving forward. This is so much better than Jericho Action Andretti which had a clear tell in the sense that they went to a commercial break. Yeah. You yeah. know, like, it, 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 and, and like once that went, to, you're like, okay, they, they might do something here. Yeah. Now, yeah. granted, I, I'm 30 years wiser at that point, perhaps, but I don't know, like Jericho and Andretti to me, I, I'm going to say this to this day, that just feels like that was an excuse for Jericho in a tumultuous time of AEW to run to Dave Meltzer and tell him what a great guy he was. <laughs> I, I, I to, to this day, I am so adamant that Jericho, you know, was thinking back to when Scott Hall gave him a fluke win that meant nothing on Nitro. And Jericho's like, oh, I'm going to lose to somebody who's got no chance of getting over. And I'm going to be able to say what a great guy was because I put a young and upcomer over. I, I think that it's funny. To, it's, it's tough to compare first of all because you can only do this for the first time once. And that's, that, that is a big part of this because the... 
the reason why I love the Razor Kid deal and how it's done is because you can own it for the first time. If you are going to do this, and it's never been done before, this is the way to do it. Like you say, the lucky guy hits the grand slam. Razor, it's funny to have a guy who's a star lose to a jobber. And I don't feel like Razor looks bad coming out of it because it's betrayed. And because the, the reaction of the crowd is so shocked and everybody's shocked. It frames the loss like this should not have happened. And we've just seen a one in a million. And it's happened to Razor. It didn't hurt Razor that it happened to him because it was treated as abnormal. And the follow-up, as we're going to talk about, was so good. I thought it was well done in the sense that it wasn't forgotten about. It wasn't something... Again, that's, that's something about Joker and Andretti also. Yes, yes. They did not do... And, and the reason why was because it was really going to Jericho and Starks. But... Jericho Andretti did not follow it up where Jericho was desperate to get the win back and, and they did a rematch and it went somewhere else. Andretti ends up feuding with, you know, Garcia and Guevara, gets a few wins and then it kind of peters out. Doesn't, you know, it, it, it does it does something, but it doesn't get to the end destination that this one does. And uh, again, as we're going to talk about, that's very important here. Yes. Yeah, so earlier I mentioned Razor was getting some cheers at WrestleMania 9 in the match against Bob Backlund. Now, you could just hand wave that and say, well, who the fuck liked babyface Bob Ackland early 93? Okay, mm-hmm. fair point. But we had talked about previously that Razor had been getting cheered in the Manhattan Center, even in the program with Bret Hart. Yeah. And so you talk about how this loss didn't hurt him. It's one of those like amazing things that, you know, if we all had podcasts at the time, we all would have, well, what does this mean for Razor Moan? Did this make him look bad? Does this make him look shitty? But, you know, we've got 30 years of hindsight. Not only did it not make him look shitty, what happens in a couple months? He ends up turning babyface. Yeah, and, and it's and he's a very over babyface yep. for many years. And is one of the guys who defines <clears throat> that era of WWF. So, yeah, it didn't hurt him at all. And let's get into the fallout because I spoke to someone eh, a few months ago, uh, you know, with booking experience in this business, okay? And they really reiterated how the key, you know, if you compare this to like a Jericho Andretti, is the fallout, is the follow-up, if you Mm -hmm. will. They really hammered this home on television, you know, how, you know, Razor was bothered, the the one, two, three chance. I thought one, two, three kid, I get what they're going for. They wanted the crowd to chant one, two, three at Razor, but it's a lame name. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> okay. Like, I remember it sounds like, ooh, one, two, three, kid. I'm like, why can't he be the lightning kid? Like, isn't lightning kid a better name? Yeah. But yeah. they they do they do hit that chant hard. That Even Brett and Bonnie Blackstone, uh, he gets yeah. that chant going for that, too, in, in his little promo. So it's like, it's, it's something they really hit pretty hard. Again, contrast this to the stuff we were talking about in, at the end of part one, the angles that are inconsistent in the execution. This is not that. No, it isn't. Now, it's interesting that they did this when they did because Waltman had to go back to Japan to work the Super J. Mm-hmm. Like, and they're they're even they're not saying why he's in Japan, but they are acknowledging he's in Japan on television, which again is very un WWF like in this period. Yeah, that they would like acknowledge that there's like people wrestling in Japan and it's not like a WWF tournament. Uh, so what they do is they have Razor on TV constantly challenge for a rematch, offering money upping the dollar amount every week. Uh, there's finally a real, what, it's, it's $10,000? Originally, it's, what, 5000 then Five, it's 7, yeah. 
Okay. I mean, you know, it doesn't seem like big money, but uh, it, I guess it's big money considering that the reported payoffs for working raw in this period were $150, according yeah. to <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That was in the, the contracts. 10 appearances at $150 a shot. Was the only that guarantee. Left, yeah. That left many complaining in the WWF locker room because it wasn't enough to cover expenses for a day in New York City. What a bullshit payoff for people on national television. $150. We're doing you a favor, everybody. A hundred and fifty bucks? <laughs> that is fucking shameful. <laughs> I want more than that gambling on the last pay-per-view. <laughs> Dude, this is hideous. A hundred and fifty fucking dollars? National television. Unbelievable. But there finally is a rematch on Raw. And Kid kills June. himself. Yes, he does. This is the emphasis. If you've never... So the, the rematch is far less famous. Although they did a great job on the follow-up, the rematch is far less famous, the $10,000 challenge. Hmm. But if you know it, you know what Liam just said. Kid tries a high spot. He tries a cannonball on the top rope to the outside ring, and he slips and absolutely kills himself. On the concrete. Yes. And... They do a good job of covering for it, even though it's obviously a botch. I'm assuming the finish was supposed to be kid hitting the move, grabbing the money, and bolting. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Instead, what they wound up doing is they had to, like, kind of, you know, catch themselves. Kid hit something, another move, and then he grabs the money and leaves into a waiting car. And so it's a no contest, but the, you know... Kid outsmarts Razor. The baby face outsmarts the heel. Because the buildup, and we should hit on this, Liam, because yeah. I know you have some thoughts on, on, on Waltman's interviews and whatnot that they were doing on television and on the yeah. phone. Um, that they were doing this great job of playing up. Well, eh, should Walton, sh- should the kid accept the the this money for a rematch? Because he's going to get really hurt. Razor's going to be out for revenge. He's going to beat his ass. And is like $5,000 worth it, is $7,500 worth it, is $10,000 worth the ass whipping yeah. and that he's likely to take. And that was a big part of this. So if you're th- if you've never watched the rematch and you heard us go about, oh, you know, kid just steals the money and runs off. That sounds heelish or something like that. It really played into what they were building over several weeks. Yeah, exactly. And they were they were showing uh, with every week that you know Razor would come out and do these challenges and upping the money. They'd be showing these promos of Kid, frankly dressed like somebody who'd gone to the show in a WCW shirt. When they come and they say, "You're not wearing that, but we'll give you our shirt and our cap and our bum bag and our our bracelets and watches, and you can have a, a, a free Hulk Hogan banner as well." Uh, well, that was his but- Lucky Raw T-shirt. He was saying. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's probably worth more than that you got fucking paid. So apparently, yeah. so. But yeah, so, so he, uh, he, he, he. But his delivery on these promos, where he's so, I mean, it's, it's if you look at it through modern eyes, it would just be called a terrible promo. It would just be all, you know, oh, the delivery's terrible. He's so shy. He doesn't speak well. But you know what? For what this is, and for what he is, it was kind of perfect for the story that he did these dorky promos where he, he, he looks like he's out of his element because it's just like you watch this and you think yeah you shouldn't accept this match because razor will beat your ass 
Yeah, and he's always talking about watching WWF with his grandparents. And like he watched <laughs> these interviews. He seemed like a guy who was who would watch WWF with his grandparents at the time. Mm-hmm. And to your point about the interview style, okay, it, this is a big difference between older and modern wrestling. And because you're right, in the modern world, they would not have allowed him to, you know come across like so dorky. And I, I, I guess just such a, everyone would have called it a bad promo in their yeah. reviews. But the key is if he's cutting polished promos, that kills the gimmick. Yeah, of course. And that because, mattered. Yes, and that mattered back then. You, you, they were trying to convey this was a kid who got very lucky with one move and he's scared to take the rematch, deservedly so. And, um, and yeah, and that's what they were going with. I also... To the rematch, I loved the opening like ten seconds. How he hit a big move and almost got him again. Yeah, yeah, that was, whoa, whoa. yeah. That was the best way to open a, a rematch between these two. The layout of the second match is really good, and it is a shame it didn't hit the cannonball because that probably would have come off. Oh, well, it would have come off way better. It still came off okay, but like he can barely make it to the curtains. He's trying to run away because he's just like, oh, he. he, he all the stories are that he he had a concussion, right? Yeah, and Razor like he's like desperately trying, like desperately trying to like run in, like he's running in pudding because he's he's basically caught up to him by the time of the curtain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it's been well said that he he knocked himself out, had a concussion there. So, yeah. So that's Kid and Razor. Is there anything else we want to talk about there? So that's kind of where we're gonna leave it. Mm-hmm. That okay, we have our monumental upset, first jobber win in seven years on WF, first jobber win in WF history, I should say. Yeah. And, you know, Kit, you know, Razor, despite losing, is still over. He's actually in the process of going babyface. We'll get to that in part three. And they've got this unique newcomer, one, two, three kid, who has outsmarted the bigger, stronger heel and is not being paid well to do it. <laughs> so let's go to Michaels and Janetti, which is the other big part of the May 17th. Raw. The setup here, well, going back, okay, as uh, listeners will remember in part one, Janetti was 86th after the Royal Rumble match. Uh, you know, there were reports that he was hammered during the match, that, that the match was not well received backstage, so he gets fired. Okay. Yeah. Well, here on this May 17th Raw, Shawn Michaels is being interviewed by Vince. One thing that's weird is they're like, Vince is poking fun at Sean for not defending the Intercontinental title when he had defended it the previous two weeks on Raw. Yeah, that was strange. Again, I wonder how far in advance this was planned. Oh, I don't think it was. I think it was totally done as a a shock last second thing. And we'll get into that in a minute. The Gennetti coming back and winning the title. But I mean, so those two matches that Michaels had on Raw were both against Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Okay. And are some of Duggan's best work ever in WWF, by the way. We talked about that, the feud with Yokozuna, and how, like, it's inexplicable that Jim Duggan, towards the end, did his best work in yeah, six years. It took, him, it took him six years to get going, and then he's done. Yeah, but, I mean, those are, like, very watchable TV matches between Michaels and, and, and Duggan on Raw. It's a lumberjack match. Yokozuna um, leg drops Duggan in, in, in the one. It turns into a brawl with perfecting involved. But anyway. Michaels is in the ring being interviewed by Vince, accused of not defending the title when he had defended it the previous two weeks. <laughs> but 
a, a individual in disguise just sort of saunters out of the crowd. Okay, this is not something that could happen to. Uh, I mean, obviously it's a work, but um, you know they're kind of like. <laughs> I love how Savage starts like Vince. You know, like there's a <laughs> rando walking in the ring. It's Wackles. He's back. Yeah, <laughs> it, very well done. And it's Marty Jannetty in a disguise. Yes. And it's great. The guy just gets in the ring and. and Michael's like, oh, go take your seat or whatever. And then he just rips the mask off and Marty Janetti. Yeah, I think yeah. it's what Savage else. And it should be noted, Liam, this took place, this angle, right before the kid upset Razor. Yeah. So when the upset took place, this show felt like total chaos where you had an impromptu intercontinental title match coming later and then this big upset in between. Yeah, and the dynamic works so well because the crowd is really hot. After Janetti shows up, Sean basically says that, you know, he's a man of his word and he'll put the belt on the line you know, in any kind of situation or whatever, anytime, any place. Here comes Janetti in perfect time. Mike, you know, Janetti and Vince and the crowd are just goading Sean. Like, you said you're a man of your word. Are you going to put it on the line tonight? Are you going to do it tonight? And Michaels comes up with the excuse. Janetti doesn't have his gear. Janetti says, well, I'll go and get it and we'll do it tonight. And and Sean's like, God damn it. And he kind of ends up with the, yes, he'll do it. Yes, he'll do it. It's like, okay, this is unexpected. It's exciting. It's happening later on. Then the kid beats Razor. Yeah, I can imagine. Seeing this for the first time in real time, it has been mind-blowing. Yeah, and, you know, you didn't have, like, an impromptu title change. Ever. Like, on WWE. Like, was there, they had never, we talked well, about. Well, like, they did, they, the like, they did, Yeah. Well, okay, yeah. I, well, Hogan well, yeah, we're going to get yeah. to that. We're gonna, yeah, we're going to get to that. Now, like, of, of course, uh, fresh in our minds. And, and that kind of, that was my one criticism. I'll get to that. But, yeah. like, throughout the history, like, this is what you can do on Raw, where it's, you know, now we're so accustomed to in this very ring tonight. Well, they yeah. didn't do that because everything was taped and and whatnot. So, and, and you know, they'd want to hype it for weeks on end. But here we go. Janetti walks back into the promotion. He's like, I want a title match tonight. He gets it. They do a great job hyping it throughout the show. You know, in between, you get the kid upset a razor, which we just talked about. And then you get to this match between Michaels and Janetti. And I'm going to say this right now, Liam, few, if any, are as high on this as I am. I have watched this match <laughs> so many times. I know it almost spot for spot. I think Michaels really starts becoming the expert at near falls here. This is when he really perfected the count out at two and three quarters. The yeah. count at two and three quarters. The, the shoulder, the shoulder popping up with his arm by his side, still kind of a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as you kind of alluded to there, I think the only way this could have been better is if they just hadn't done an impromptu WF title switch <laughs> in Mania. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that kind of, I don't want to say it hurts this because it really doesn't. I, like you, I'm going to take the opportunity to, to fawn over Sean Michaels here. Janetti and Michaels are really, really great together. But Sean is just so good. My God, is he good here. And uh, to see... I, I'm, I was trying to figure out, like, at what point does Sean, like, evolve into just being, like, the top one or two guy in the whole promotion? Because he was always really good, obviously. But, like, you start seeing this more and more with Sean. And it's like, man, he is... And the crowd, again, because of what you mentioned before with Kid and Razor... The upset had just happened. So the, the audience is so ready for another one. They're so ready that think of, we are seeing a really special show tonight. This is and very he, unique, special. We, this could actually happen. We might get the title change. Yeah, and Heenan is great. The whole show saying, I don't like this. I don't yeah. like this. Kind of representing <laughs> the heel mindset. You know, the idea, you know, could we really have two upsets in one night? I mean, this is when... 
you know, as lame as it may be for me to say the anything can happen on Monday Night Raw really begins. Yeah, for sure because, it does. Because as we said before, the, the previous three, four months, Raw was superstars in a live environment. That's essentially yes. what it was. This mm-hmm. is where they, they realize, okay, when we are live and we're looking to do stuff that is interesting within the, the context of a, of a single show, uh, the floodgates are open. And this is where they, 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 this was so good. This was such a good show. I don't know if you've had a chance to rewatch it recently or if one, whatever the hell last time you watched it was, but these two, Michaels and Janetti, a couple months later on Raw have what one match of the year in like PWI for 93. Meltzer gave it four and three quarter stars. I actually like this match better. Yeah, is that the one when Janetti does the dive into the lips and goes flying over the top rope in the end? Yes. Yeah, I think I, I prefer this one too. Because I just I think because what it means, like like it just you know there's a lot of times I talk about you have to work a TV style match. That's what these guys do. Like this is always the match I call to when there is sort of this immediacy to it. Like it felt like this could end at any moment. Yeah. Like, like it's not like. One criticism of modern work that I would like to say is everybody just wants to be able to go 25. Yeah. And when they aren't allowed to go 25, they kind of work the same way and they just take parts out. Yeah, they cram like it. The, the, yeah, they, they just try to cram more in and don't let it breathe. Whereas this was just, you know, worked like with just an immediacy and an intensity where it could just end at any moment. We're just going to go for near falls and it was great. It's just absolute in terms of a TV match. I think this is perfection. Um, this, to be yeah. honest with you, this this match though to contrast this to Flair and Perfect, which I'd, I'd explain in part one. I kind of had a weird like it, didn't love it, but it was good kind of relationship with this match is the opposite. This is the match where I had heard about this for years, and when I finally saw it, it was better than I thought because, like you, I'd heard a lot more about the second one. The, the one that I just mentioned there. And I feel this is better because I feel like the crowd dynamic's better. People believe and want so badly to see Janetti beat Sean because, it, it, again, it's like until he does it, until he beats Sean, there's always that unfinished part of the story, of the feud. Like the babyface got thrown through the window. He got fucked over. He lost at the Rumble. Janetti's back suddenly disappears again. He's back suddenly. Wouldn't it be great if, if it happens? And again, we should mention, I think we mentioned in part 1B, I think, or eh, 1A, 1B. Well, in part 1, we mentioned that Kurt Hennig had put the word in with Vince that Janetti, uh, that Sean was perhaps as uh, guilty as Janetti in terms of not being his finest physical condition at the Royal Rumble. Um, so this was, again, as we say, something that was done very kind of short notice and, and yeah, given to Janetti and... and God damn, did it work? It's a, again, it's almost sad when you see like the follow up where it's like, this really is like all this means to me is like this, this, this is perfect. I wouldn't change anything about this. Um, and as a result, I think it's the better match of the two. Yeah. Both guys were as sober as the day is long, at least yeah. so it seemed. <laughs> uh, and you know, they don't have money to buy drugs, quite frankly. Uh, <laughs> these payoffs. But, um, you know, you mentioned Mr. Perfect. He, we, of course, have to talk about how he gets involved in the finish. Yeah. You know, Michaels does gain after a series of near falls, like red hot near falls, like the slingshot. Yeah. Uh, I mean, these were some of like the best near falls I think I'd ever seen 
as a Power kid. slam. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. L- l- like, yeah, I mean, the crowd was buying that stuff. It's not like now. Again, you know, man, I don't mean to, you know, I'm sorry, man, if you don't want me to say in this stuff. But well, <laughs> I, I, all. I, I stopped doing a regular podcast because I just did because modern wrestling was upsetting me. But like, it's like, like the modern near falls. Okay, yes. But we used to have near falls all the time. It's not that like what doesn't irk me about modern wrestling isn't people kicking out at two and three quarters all the time and the lean, the you know leaning on that. It's the kind of moves that are being done they're kicked out from. Yeah, and and a, the the fucking in WWF like the shocked face too is like go. the selling of it when when no one else buys it, but you're trying to make everybody believe that you thought that this was going to be the match ender when yeah. nobody in the building believed that it was going to be. Yeah, I don't like yeah. that either. Yeah, yeah. Back then in this period, you didn't have you know I mean Savage and Steamboat had to, and again, but those are like near falls where guys are like just cradling each other, not hitting huge moves. Yeah. Um. But but they're still believable because they're you know back to like Kid and Razor. It's like a shock move. Like oh my god, that would have knocked him out for three seconds. You don't yeah. know. But perfect. Well, let's. So Michaels get regains the edge after these near falls. Get focused again, Kyle. <laughs> and per perfect Michaels, who had tried to run away from Duggan a couple weeks before. Okay, which is why they did the and he did run away, and that's why they had the lumberjack. The lumberjack, yeah. But Michaels tries running away here in the middle of the match. Mister Perfect, you mentioned him earlier. He stops him because Perfect and Sean are, of course, feuding now after WrestleMania nine. So, so that's kind of interesting too. How you know Sean's feuding with Perfect, but his old rival comes back too. Another difference, you know, usually in old WWE, you're just married to one guy, and that's all you talked about. Here, perfect saunters down and perfect factors into the finish, throwing the towel at Michaels and when Michaels is bragging and Janetti cradles him. How do I think some people might think that finish is weak? Your thoughts on it? I don't think it's weak. I think it's the f- if you know where they're going, which is that it's going back to Michaels to set up perfect, which obviously is, is the match they were building to. I don't have a problem with it because it's kind of like a karmic finish, you know? It's like it's like, yeah. So Perfect did get involved, but Sean's been so screwed for so long that something deserved to blow up in his face. It happened with Janetti. Everyone's just excited that it happened, and then it gives just cause for the rematch. So I'm fine with it. Yeah, but a title change on TV was a big deal. The fans went home happy. They popped big. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it went well. Okay, let's talk about the fallout now. Marty, and you alluded to this moments yeah. ago, hit, Meltzer reported, and, and I think Wade Keller did as well, that this title change was a last-minute decision, never designed to be a long-term thing. In fact, Marty getting rehired, as Dave points out, for his fourth tenure with Titan <laughs> uh, was probably a result of negotiating with both WCW and the new group Paul Heyman was trying to start up with Jim Crockett mm. in Dallas. So I think you know it's it's so odd that Vince all of a sudden wants you when someone yeah. else does. Oh, like, yeah. Did he, does, does, did he really think, oh, God, Marty Jannetty? Like if, if Paul Heyman and Jim Crockett get a hold of him, we I could be in some real trouble. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know if that's it. I think that's the kind of speculation about like it's probably the result of this. I'm not saying it didn't play a part. It may have been a factor to, to some degree, but I think that there was like I say, I think that uh, there was a there was a purpose for him to be back. I don't think that they really. That was the thing with Janetti. It was like they would get rid of him, but you never felt like they really wanted him to be gone forever. It was just like this just isn't working out right now. Let's just get you out of the the way until it's time to try it again. Well, I mean, almost every time we've been gone, it was like, God damn it, man. Stop doing drugs and with <laughs> underage girls. You know? yeah. it's, like, it's amazing how much has changed in uh, how many years. Yeah. yeah do, 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 do. Um, so, but look, this was not going to be a long-term thing with Marty. It was just something to establish Raw. as. And, and by the way, I've told this story before. 
the, it, I did not. I w- I couldn't watch Raw live at first because Monday nights, nine o'clock. Obviously, we only had one TV in our house mm-hmm. wired for cable, and my parents were not about to give up the TV for me to watch wrestling at nine o'clock on Monday. So when I heard about this on WWF Mania, I was like incensed that I missed it and wound up getting a tele. Oh, we, we wound up getting a second television in the basement that had cable. <laughs> this, was this because the show of this that caused show. that? Yeah, oh wow! Yes, because of this show. Because I was so mad, I like complained to my parents for like months. I was like, I don't like missing wrestling on Mondays. I need we need more. Ca- we need another cable TV in this house. So yeah, <laughs> it was because of that. That is how important this May seventeenth Raw is. Wow! Uh, that it, it resulted in uh, a second cable television in the Ross household but uh anyway michaels gets the title back on june 6th so a little less than a month later on a house show in albany another house show title change yeah they love him and and he does so with a little help from a new bodyguard that is at first not named but we would come to know you know him as diesel (laughs) Uh, formerly vinnie vegas in wcw obviously kevin nash what do you again? We talked about this back in 1992 when the Mountie beat Bret Hart. They went six years without a house show title change. WWF. Yes, they did. How many of there has there been now in the in a year I've, and a half? I've lost count of the amount of house show title changes in the last 18 months that we talked about on these shows. Mountie over Bret. Yeah. Money Inc. Money Inc. over LOD. Um. And then, then they do like they do like the couple untelevised ones with the yep. disasters getting disasters. it, and flare. Yeah. Um and then I guess this would be number I guess in terms of like a house show, this is only number three, but we weren't done yet. We're not done we in this weren't. episode. Talk about house show title changes. It's obviously an attempt, I guess, to boost struggling house show business. It doesn't work. No, okay, no. But, but as, the, as you talked about in part two, way this is the period of time where they're starting to kind of get a little bit more wiser. You know what? If you want to do, if you want a certain result, maybe we should take a certain action to get it. Yeah, it's like it's like, oh crap! How show business down? How can we, you know, revitalize? Oh, with title changes. Well, Let's if the do product's something. cold. That's yeah. The product, if it's cold, it's not going to matter. You know, we, no. we saw. Remember, like people always like to. Oh, I love the idea of a house show title change. They. They didn't do it during the Attitude Era either. No. Right? So like, I'm trying to think. Maybe Edge. Didn't Edge do it? They did They, they did have Edge, Edge in Toronto, but then they just gave back the next night. So it was just kind of like a, a one and done. It wasn't like to actually change direction like they, do, like they did here. Yeah, but, but they're not. All right. Anyway, but let, let's get to the title change itself. So Diesel, I don't think yes. they name him to King of the Ring. No, right? they don't. Well, what do they keep calling him? On television, his insurance policy. Is, yeah, the, insur- the insurance policy is the, is the the term used, and it's only at the King of the Ring when he talks about diesel fuel. Okay. Um. Hmm. Where do we want to go from here? Because I have a lot of questions. Um. Before now, okay. Let, uh, we can start with this tidbit. Before he jumped ship to Titan, Nash did an interview with a paper from his hometown and said that WCW started testing for steroids last year. Dave Meltzer said, that's news to everyone else in the company. <laughs> uh, and, of course, there's the famous story how Nash, uh, you know, went to Ole Anderson and demanded a raise or else, you know, yeah. knowing that he was going to get fired. Because he already had the deal. Like, Michaels on one of the DVDs talked about how he saw Vinny Vegas on WCW TV and thought he was funny. And, yeah. wa- and I think they had this idea that Shawn Michaels would have a bodyguard. Yeah, yeah. And... 
so so basically knowing a job was awaiting him in Titan, he intentionally got released from WCW. He shows up here. This is the question I want to ask. Three different presentations of Sean so far as a single. He had Sherry at first, then he's solo, no Sherry, and now he has Diesel, the bodyguard. What did you like best? Diesel easily. I really like Sean with Diesel a great deal. It very much feels to me like Sean becomes more organic as a chicken shit heel, and his personality really starts coming through a lot yes. more with Diesel as his guy, because with Sherry, it's like, okay, he's he's getting his character over and stuff like that as the heartbreak kid, and that's great. Sherry's you know, a name, she's a star, it matters, but it's... I don't really feel like once you've established that, there's nowhere really for it to go, which is why it had a short shelf life, ultimately. Solo, solo. it feels like he needs something to help him get over the hump. He can get to a certain point because he said, I'm talented. But Diesel really adds something because with Diesel there, you've got something that allows Sean to be that chicken shit heel, to just be as obnoxious as he wants to be. It's kind of hard to do that when, like, you know, without making the baby faces look bad. And now you've got a reason why the baby faces can lose to Sean. Absolutely. And, you know, it seemed like right off the rip, he got a lot more confident in his promos. I agree. Too. Like, he, you know, here's the thing. We talked about it when they put him and Sherry together. That was important because Sean was a guy coming out of a tag team and Sherry had previously managed Savage and DiBiase. And so it identified Sean as someone worth caring about. But I think you're right. It had a ceiling because it was it was gimmicky, right? Yeah. Like, he yeah. was in love with himself. He was the heartbreak, like the heartbreak kid went from less gimmicky to just more of Shawn Michaels as an asshole. Yeah, which is what we were talking about with Luger. Like they, they, the the adding of the gimmickry is okay in the one dimensional realm, but it, it does have a, a limit of how effective it can be. It's when Rick, you know, it's it's the Rick Rude thing of like, okay, so it's Rick Rude's at his best as most people think in WCW, where he just gets to be asshole Rick Rude, which is mm-hmm. awesome. And this is the same here where, like, Sean gets to – it really does feel like he becomes closer to himself. He's, he's heading that way anyway when he's a solo guy, but it, it flourishes completely with Nash. Well, yeah, and it's, you know, it's the Sean that we – you know, the heel Sean that we'd all come to know and love because, of course, the correct answer for what the best presentation of Sean Michaels is, and it hadn't happened yet, is with Triple H's bag carrier. But That's uh, correct. You know. That's correct. Okay. Sean sure, Michaels <laughs> coked out of his mind. <laughs> On every role, just being the biggest asshole in the history of the business. Also, I will say, Nash, obviously as part of his exit from the company, has claimed that he uh, also, you know, he, he'd said that, you know, well, you know, I just, I just want to quit the business. I want out if you're not going to give me the raise, you know. And that yes. old cut him. And then it's like, you always like raise an eyebrow when Nash tells a story like this because like he's, it's like his street smarts. And it's like, okay, Kev, I'm not so, oh, yeah, <laughs> did you really fool him or did you just, yeah, maybe he did. But Rick Steiner was the guy who was uh, the, the, uh, the go-between, the intermediary between Sean and Nash. I always love the go-betweens. Remember, like, was it like, who like wasn't Bushwhacker Luke the go between for Big Show? Yes, Big Show Vince. Yeah, yes. That that's always one of my favorite stories. But so, all right. So we like Sean Moore now with Diesel added to the package. Um, we've you know talked about how they did the title change to House Show, Albany, New York, June sixth. Mm-hmm. Should they have done the title switch at King of the Ring? Do you think instead of doing that Michaels Crush match? Or yes, 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 yes. yes. I was actually going to say that. I feel the same. way. I don't like that they do this on the House Show where 
I, I understand why it's the old attitude of, you know, you don't really want to show the baby face losing, but you're going to do it with with Diesel anyway. So there's a reason for him to lose. I I feel like it was a mistake, personally. Okay. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that Crush and Sean needed to happen. It didn't have a, a, anything going for it going in. I don't know why they felt the need to move to that, because that was a fairly shortly put together thing based on the King of the Ring qualifiers we'll talk about. Yes. So it, it, it didn't have nearly the the meaning or the equity that the, the Sean Marty rematch would have meant considering they weren't doing Sean and perfect. That was the, to me, the natural. Yeah. I, I'm only wondering, I'm not like excusing them or whatever. I, but, and maybe this is a fair point given that Yokozuna is going to beat Hogan, a King of the ring, spoiler alert. Maybe they didn't want to have two heel title wins on the same show. That was something they were cognizant of back in this time period. Now you wouldn't even bat an eyelash about it, but I wonder if that was the thinking internally. Yeah, it could have been. I could, I could see there being something to that. Uh, okay. More title changes. So <laughs> we're not done. One hell of a t- of an hour of television. If people and look, I'm sure you've all seen it, the May 17th Raw. But if you haven't, go watch it again. I actually watched it twice in preparation for this podcast. <laughs> I liked it so much the first time um, that I watched it again. So just there's other fun stuff too. It's just it's just a great. It, it's not even an hour. It's because they cut the that commercials out on by Peacock. 42 minutes. Like, yeah. But there are more title changes to discuss, Liam, and we go to the tag division for them. The Steiners and Money, Inc. trade the tag titles on a house show run, resulting in the Steiners keeping them. So it wasn't just one title change. It was three. Money, Inc. loses to the Steiners. Steiners lose it back. Steiners get it back. Yeah. This, This is taking house show title changes to the extreme. Yeah. So now, like of the last six tag title changes, only one of them aired on first run TV. Yeah, and 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 none and none were on pay per view. And nope. remember what there, there was that stat we talked about that when like after LOD beat the Nasty Boys, that like the tag titles like never changed hands on pay per view. Yeah, yeah, for, for, the, for the longest time. Um. Yeah. This was the period where you know, I, it's, honestly, the tag titles. Um really kind of kind of suffered. It's funny how they announced this on television too. I don't know if you caught this, but like Gorilla Monsoon is now doing update. Update, yeah. Because Jim Ross is doing challenge with Bobby Heenan. And Gorilla Monsoon like kind of buries Kevin Dunn. At least who I presume because he, he says something <laughs> on Kevin. He's like, Kevin, just be quiet. I'll tell you about it. <laughs> He's like on the phone. Like it's supposed to be this like shot like we caught Gorilla and candid like uh action like on the phone before he's ready to deliver this update about these series of ted <laughs> title changes yeah i like I, you know what though having said that stein is gonna done with the televised win pretty badly we were talking about last time about how the steiners felt like they never actually did much of anything angle wise or you never got to see really any big achievements of the steiners on television like they could have done with this back money inc give it up well what they could have done and we talked about this earlier is the steiners needed to win the belts earlier like at yeah, mania nine mania, the, yeah. the, the fact that hogan was programmed with Money Inc. meant Money Inc. had to stay relatively strong and they couldn't drop him to the Steiners. And, you know, I'm going to get to that later on, how I just think delaying that title win hurt them. But this was, look, the right team ends up with the titles. Let's be honest there. The Steiners yeah. obviously needed the belts and Money Inc. just has just killed this division dead over the last year and a half. There's this tool on Twitter, <laughs> Rasslin History 101 <laughs> is what he calls himself. Okay. okay, you think with a name like Rasslin History 101, you'd be smart. I saw this guy salute Money Inc. one time, like as being a great team. I got a salute for Money Inc. 
Yeah, I mean, well, I know. How about a salute for wrestling history? What a one! If you guys see this guy <laughs> on Twitter, fucking rip him, bury him. I don't give a damn. I'm like, I'll like your tweet. <laughs> but this was such an inexplicably long run for Money Inc. The Steiners, they needed the belts. They finally get them. But it's it's odd. What's odd here, Liam, about the booking? Okay, because it, it, it's so the Steiners are clearly getting the belts. I think Wade noted how they had done jobs to the head shrinkers on the house shows, which is always the telltale sign and Titan that somebody's going to get a belt. It's <laughs> something they were doing it back then in house shows because it would have set up a Steiner's head shrinkers program. But it's hard for me to wrap my head around some of this booking in the tag division. Money Inc. holds it way too long. The Steiners finally get it, but there's no one set up for them. Even though that they're, they're going to a Steiner's head shrinkers program, allegedly. Okay. The Steiners have already beaten the head shrinkers at mania. And then you've got the smoking guns or the new heel t- or, or the new babyface team. Pardon me. They actually get the pin on Money Inc. at King of the Ring, like the day before the Steiners win the belts. Yeah, so you've sort of right. established your top two babyface teams and have nothing fresh on the heel side whatsoever. Yeah, that's poor. <laughs> that's poor planning. Yeah, really. Oh it just again. I know you said you didn't like the Steiners and Head Shrinkers at Mania so much. Yeah, it's not necessarily to say that they wouldn't have had good matches elsewhere. I'm sure they could have, but just that one felt like it didn't click that day. But I, th- I wouldn't have minded that as, as the well, program. But Okay, well, here's my point. If you hadn't had the Steiners beat the Head Shrinkers at Mania, that's your tag. Like, to me, yeah, like, the, the, the obvious booking of this tag division for 93 is Steiners beat Money Inc. at Mania. Hogan does something much more significant. And then the Head Shrinkers, like, beat the Nasties at Mania, and St- and the Head Shrinkers, who have not been beaten yet, are the Steiners' natural first challengers, and that's yeah. your tag title program. Now, it's funny that they were going to try to go back to that uh, for SummerSlam. We'll talk about this in the next part, mm. but it, it winds up not happening, Steiners and Head Shrinkers at SummerSlam, and uh, Vince has to kind of go in some weird directions to get some new blood on the heel side of the tag division. Yeah, which is, I, I appreciate. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate well, that they did. Yeah, I, I, exactly. But it, it's just a yeah, very, very odd booking um, in this tag division. Early part of 93. And I guess I blame Hulk Hogan because you couldn't take the titles off Money, Inc. until a certain point. And, and you know, the Smoking Guns, I mentioned they got the win over Money, Inc. Uh, at King of the Ring in the eight-man. So it's Steiners and Guns against Money, Inc. and, and Head Shrinkers. And shrinkers. But... The guns were like a brand new team. They lose the Money Inc. on television before that. So you do this yeah. even Steven booking with the guns and Money Inc. And, you know, and the Steiners get the ball. It's just v- very odd. Yeah. It's like, do, do we have any idea of like where the fuck we want to go with this? It's like they know they need to move to the Steiners because Money Inc. sucks and it's dead. Mm-hmm. But like they have, no, they have like the, the, the way to get there is, again, it feels like it's done. Like, you know, was this really the plan for any length of time? They're going to do it on house shows after King of the Ring. Like, it just feels really out of nowhere. Well, we know Money Inc. is not long for this promotion. That's it. So, I I mean, obviously, they probably had the idea that we're going to put the titles on the Steiners at some point when you bring them in. You don't bring the Steiners in to not put the tag team titles on them. No. But, again, the, the Hogan program kind of interfered with that. We talked about in part one how Steiners and Money Inc. was a rumor initially for WrestleMania. And it yeah. should have happened. Uh, but it didn't. And so we've got new tag team champions after a series of title changes. What do you think about doing it not once, but three times on the house shows? Again, why? It seems excessive. I get, you're trying to, it's, it's the same thing as, you know, Sean is about to win the belt on a house show as well. 
It's like, how many house show title changes do we need to do before we ram it down people's throats that title changes can happen at the house shows? It's, it's just too much for my taste. Okay, so this is what's crazy here. We talked about no house show title changes in this promotion for six years, okay? In the span of two weeks, they had four in June it's, of 93. And if that doesn't tell you where the priorities are, in terms of how important house shows were then, and we're going to talk about house show numbers soon that were not fucking good and probably scared the bejesus out of them, actually. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably part of the reason why they were doing this. Okay, yeah. So, all right. A lot of titles changing hands on the undercard. Uh, exciting hour of television. Now, let's move to King of the Ring because we talked about this last time, a fifth pay-per-view added to the calendar in 1993. And we're calling this section King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime, okay? Uh, hopefully I don't offend too many Bret Hart fans with that one, but <laughs> let's take a look at the situation and how it unfolds here. Uh, the King of the Ring tournament clearly designed to rehab Bret Hart after what happened at WrestleMania 9. That's a fair statement, right? Yep, I think so. So much so, Liam, that, and I think I teased this last time out. I think when Titan decided on the concept for this new pay-per-view, they already had in mind that Bret Hart was going to get screwed at WrestleMania. Because if, what are you doing with this tournament if it's not rehabbing Bret Hart off WrestleMania 9? The only thing that you would say naturally is that it probably becomes what it does for the next two years, which is setting up the challenge for SummerSlam, right? Like, other, other than that, there's no purpose for this at all. The the Vince line that we mentioned to Brett before WrestleMania 9 about how it's onwards and upwards and I'm going to promote you hard still and stuff like that is with this clearly in mind. Yes, I mean, I, I think it's almost kind of like, all right, we're going to screw you, but don't worry, we've, we're, we're going to rehab you. You're still going to be a big deal, yeah. Yeah, and it is the Bret Hart show, King of the Ring 93. Um, you know, everyone knows about it. He wins three good to great matches um, over Razor Ramon, Perfect, and Bigelow. But let's talk about the qualifying matches yes. first. Okay, Brett is seeded number one and does not have to qualify. So, again, they're kind of telling you <laughs> Brett Hart is really important. What did you He's think about that? above the fray. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it, well, what did you think about that? Like, as a baby face, they're just like, Brett Hart's in this tournament. He deserves it. I mean, it made him feel more important. It did. did. It felt like a star was involved. It's weird. We should probably mention at some point the promo that Brett does on Raw with Vince, where it's talking about Hogan and Yoko and Luger. Big, and Luger. He has, and it's he has the, a hit list. The hit list, which of course <laughs> doesn't have matches with like any of them on television mm -hmm. for uh, quite a while, and Hogan never. So, and, and to go from that to like, okay, and now, so you've got a hit list of three guys, but you're going to do King of the Ring instead. You're seated number one. There's more to this that meets the eye, and we'll talk about shortly because I think that you have an observation that is pretty dead on that probably ties into that, what I just said. But I like the idea of qualifying matches, and I do like that if you're trying to differentiate Brett, that he's a star and he's above the fray, the rank and file, as Mean Gene once called them all. Um, this is probably the way. Yeah, it's not a bad way to do it. At qualifying matches were reported by Meltzer as a Jim Ross idea. Yeah, I can see that. Do you think Jim Ross was leaking to the Observer during this period? It kind of felt like he was. Jim Ross has been leaking to the Observer <laughs> for like th three and a half decades now, I think. I, yes, okay. absolutely well, a source but, for Dave. But, 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 like, but like the way that like, I mean, like Dave was going like out of his way to give Jim Ross positive coverage of the Observer. Like, you know, he, he had this note. Oh, you know, 
people were really worried about JR go, or well, not JR at the time, Jim Ross uh, going to mm-hmm. Titan, you know, what they would do to his announcing. But they're like, it seems like he's actually had a positive effect on Vince because Vince is talking about the Steiner's college background. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I, yeah, mean, I, were, I mean, mean, you know, Dave was like grasping at straws. Like, I mean, and I, and I actually liked Jim Ross. I thought he was a breath of fresh air. I thought he worked well he with was. Heenan. It was funny that Wade Keller um, speculated in the torch that Bobby Heenan might try to sandbag Jim Ross because he's a friend of Gorilla Monsoon and Jim Ross took Gorilla Monsoon's spot on television. I didn't get that at all. No, not at all. Sorry, Wade. I I don't agree with that one. Okay. It certainly didn't play out that way. Um, No. Well, when you added Randy Savage to the mix, it was odd (laughs) because Savage was just doing his own thing and it felt like... (laughs) Do the thing indeed. Yeah, do the thing, brother! King of the ring! WWF! Michael Pro, just yelling random words. But anyway, the qualifying matches, Brett doesn't have to do one, but the other seven were Razor Ramon over Tito Santana, Mr. Hughes over Kamala, Jim Duggan over Papa Shango. What a rogue gallery this is. match that was. (laughs) Bigelow over Typhoon. Not much better. Luger over Backlund. Tatanka over Gonzalez. Give me the Indian. I cannot believe even Johnny in 1993 that, that the television that made tell. So if you haven't seen it, and this caught me by surprise, <laughs> I didn't remember. They did a po- they did a podium interview. No, it wasn't. It was a podium interview with Gonzalez and Harvey oh, Whippleman. Yes, yes, and yes, they yes. kick it, to, and it was previewing the the next week where Gonzalez would wrestle Tatanka in a qualifying match. Harvey took the bulk of the interview, and they put the mic in front of Gonzalez, and he goes, "Give me the Indian." <laughs> That's why they give him. Well, that's the thing. It's like they gave him one line every time, so he probably didn't even know what he was saying. It's like, yeah, say, give, give me the Indian. Give me the Indian. <laughs> what the fuck is that? But of course, the most famous qualifying match is Mister Perfect over Doink. Mm-hmm. They they get three tries, and I think this deserves a special shout. Yeah. I, I didn't know if you had it. I, 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 I like the way that this is done. Yeah, so they basically, for those who, who do not know, they do two time limit draws with Perfect and Doink on TV before they finally do the one on Raw. And, uh, yeah, and so it's a good series. They're fun matches, and I like this dynamic quite a lot. I like that they did, they, they did this with... I don't know, it just, felt, it just felt more... I felt like it helped the tournament, you know? It's just like, it, this actually is like, these guys really want to get in. It's important they get in. It's important that we figure out who deserves to go in. I like this concept. I do too. You're right. It did make it the tournament feel more important that these guys were getting in. And it felt by the time they got to that third match on Raw, it was really, I remember like being really excited um, yeah. about that. Like I was like super, super into this. Um, Perfect was kind of regaining his stride, I think. Yeah. Around this period, obviously he has the match with Brett at the pay-per-view, which is like all time good. Awesome. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, one thing that was weird, and I did not remember this until the rewatch for this podcast there's another qualifying match, Shawn Michaels and Crush. You referenced this earlier. Weirdly, they just get one try. They go to a double countout, and there's no rematch there. Mm, yes. I, I, got, I got a Captain Kayfabe answer for that, if you want to hear it. Okay, go for so, it. Something you'd expect from the pages of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I think it's because that was a double countout, and both guys lost, as opposed to a time limit draw. That's perfect. Uh-huh. Going ah, so both guys were. I mean, obviously, okay, in the booking sense, it was just an excuse to go back. Oh, yeah. 
for King of the Ring, which a match that maybe didn't even need to take place, Michaels and Crush. You know, Crush gets, again, we talked about him looking stupid as a yeah. babyface on the last show. He gets distracted by Doink, and Michaels obviously. I fucking, the, finish, the finish of King of the Ring, where he kicks him, and then, like, bonks his head off the turnbuckle. Like, what a dickhead. That just makes him look like a goof. That was bad. That, that was, was a real bad. <laughs> oh, oh. Come on, man. All right, but back to King of the Ring, okay? So we've got eight guys in a certain... By the way, it, like, everybody who lost the qualifier was on their way out of the promotion. Santana, Kamala, Shango, Typhoon, not Backlund, uh, Gonzalez, and I guess not Doink either, but, like, most of the guys were just mm. guys, you know, leaving the promotion. That's that, that's interesting. But we get to the tournament proper on pay-per-view. It is the Bret Hart show. Uh, the performance made even more impressive that he was working on an injured ankle suffered the night before in MSG in a win over Bob Backlund, a 30 plus minute match. That was Backlund's first ever loss in MSG. Wow. Wow. I, I, I didn't actually know that about the ankle. So, um, yeah. And then oh, they, damn, he's working a, like a performance. He's working an injured finger during the, the, you know, that that's a work deal, but talk about Bret Hart at this show. I mean, this really did. I mean, we talked about it last time. Brett was because of WrestleMania nine, the ceiling of Bret Hart could not be achieved ever. Yeah. I guess unless if he, he was to be come back and beat Hogan, which he Hogan obviously did. To, yeah. That was actually the killer. That was that we talked about that a lot. But in terms of needing to rehab Bret Hart after the events of WrestleMania, nine, this is as good a job as you can do with these three matches and this performance. Yeah. I love this show. I really, really love it. If, if you believe that nobody is higher on, the Janetti Michaels match than you. I think that no one may be higher on this show than me. I love this show. Mm. This is such a big show for me in terms of making me a fan for life because Brett was so great on this show. Brett, Brett was told that uh, he, you know, Pazin didn't, Vince didn't want to win any matches with a sharpshooter. So yes, yeah. so so they came up with a thing in the first match to raise the stamp on the finger so he had an excuse to not use it, um, and they could you know, they could play with that a little bit. But I. Brett's so good on this show. I love the crowd in the heartland of America here. The uh, the, 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 cra- the crowd is hot. There's something to do with the acoustics of the ring as well. The ring sounds louder than usual. You know, it's just it's it's got a real impact to it. I think this is Jim Ross's best night of 1993 on commentary. I think he's great on this show. Um, there's so much to love about the overall presentation of Brett as being so great a wrestler <laughs> that like he fights the three matches, wins the three, Bigelow gets the bye in the final, so it makes him look even better. Mm-hmm. He pulls it out, only to get attacked at the end by the chicken shit Lawler, and, and, and Jim Ross is just beside himself and crestfallen that this could happen, and what a terrible night here at King of the Ring that this, this could go down. I think that this is so good. The Ramon match, the crowd is fucking... They are so into that match. They're, Pay-per-view the first, opener. Yeah, the pay-per-view opener, the match with Perfect is exceptionally good. I love that match so much. I, I may, in some days, I'll prefer it over SummerSlam. I love that match. I was going to ask you that. If, yeah. yeah I, I've, I've got them both rated at four and a half stars. I, I, so there yeah, you go. It really is. a what we are, One day I'll take one because it meant more for Brett individually, and then the other one, I just love the match. I just love the point in the match where, like, they, they, yeah, the superplex, and and Jim Ross is just like, this is warfare, and he's just, he's yeah. just, they're going for it, man. It's great. The Bigelow one is 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 probably the it's the weakest of the three, probably. Um, 
and and the crowd is somewhat down after the the, the, the long night and the Hogan the Hogan sort no, of yeah Hogan's happened. lost yeah Hogan's yeah lost. so you can yeah. you can tell at this point that the crowd is a little down a little bit deflated it still works it still works when Brett pulls off the victory roll I just think this is a great way to make Brett Hart look like the top babyface of your promotion yeah uh, you know and it's great too of course the victory roll. Uh, when he doesn't execute it, would be like the most famous loss he would suffer the next yeah. year at WrestleMania. So it's good that he, that he had done it. It's not like a move that he had just decided to do so he'd countered against Owen at Mania. Mm-hmm. Um, the perfect deal is is so great because you have that pre-match interview where Gene, o- <laughs> where Gene Okerlund is like being the grand shit disturber, right? Where he's just like, oh, you know, he's talking about the fathers and whose father was better. And, his dad never and, beat my dad. <laughs> yes. Perfect is great at working subtle heel. Yeah. In that match, I, in comparing the SummerSlam match and this one, I actually think this is a better match. But you're right; the fact that the SummerSlam match is more significant to Bret Hart's career yeah. has to be taken into account. But I mean, it's really six to one, half a dozen to the other. I love the you talk about great commentary from Jim Ross that match. Bobby Heenan saying, "If Perfect wins this tournament and apologizes <laughs> to me, I'll take him back." Is one of the most incredible things I have I ever heard on commentary. <laughs> If he wins this tournament and apologizes, I might consider working with him again. Yeah. And he, like Jim Ross sounded legitimately disgusted at he that was. line. That's how you know it was a good line. But, um, you know, the thing with the Bigelow match, you talked about maybe it's weak. What did you think about them doing a, the false finish where Bigelow pinned him because Luna Vachon interfered? Th- that was something you did not see a lot on WWF television. Yeah, and they I restart the match. I wasn't crazy about that. I feel like that's kind of a that was an unneeded, unneeded wrinkle. Yeah, and, and, and you get a visual pin on the baby face too. Yeah, and why? Why do it? The, the message you want to send is Brett overcoming, not you know that he got a he got a, a mulligan because somebody yeah. cheated him again. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he he he'd already taken a pinfall via nefarious means at WrestleMania. I, I yeah, and it's not that they were saying, and it's not that they were protecting Bigelow for anything. He was just doing that shitty feel with Tatanka. We're gonna, we don't have time for it in this episode. I think we might wait till like the last part of 93 when we have more room to breathe, so to speak. And there's a lot of people just gone from the promotion. And so we can talk <laughs> about the people who are left. But man, there's some like head scratching booking with Bigelow. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, I'm not like, he was a good guy to go to the finals here, but like, it doesn't feel, he never feels that important really. In the promotion. No, you never. And again, this is this is a this is a bigger discussion. But I do feel there is something to be said that Vince never saw him as somebody he wanted to bet a lot of chips on. I feel, except when he made a at WrestleMania. <laughs> but, but, yeah, except when he made a WrestleMania to lose to the football player. Yeah, exactly. You know? and, and, it's like and, and, he, he put he put him in that position because he was good enough to pull it off, but he was expendable as well. Exactly, and and you know I think. Again, this is a, a maybe a different discussion for a different day. The fact that that match didn't work so well even going in and didn't draw as well as expected, I think has maybe something to do with the fact that Bigelow was not portrayed in a certain light. Oh, completely. Up to it. Yeah, okay. Completely, right. absolutely completely agree. He was he was a guy, it was, it's funny when you talk about like, yeah, there's a lot of Bigelow-Vader comparisons that you would hear, especially I would read a lot of when I first got online 20 or so years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I just find it funny because, like, I remember having a discussion with my brother about it. It's like, you do realize when people make that comparison that the comparison really is Vader and Yoko because they were the two that were treated similarly in terms of being the monster heel. Bigelow wasn't. Bigelow was like the mid card tough guy. He really, they never saw him as, they never really positioned him as more than that. 
they they put him in that that position one time with LT because he wasn't a top star and he could lose. And it's like, yeah, he's, they, they never saw him that way. I wonder if, you know, I wonder if uh, Vince just, after, after what happened in 87, Vince just thought, in 88, Vince just thought, I'll never, I'm never going to bet on him. Yeah, I mean, we, we, like, openly mocked those vignettes they brought him back with. Oh, like, yeah. Those were, just, those were so, like, lame and, like, lazy. just didn't have, yeah, they, lazy is the great word. Okay, now, the word lazy is thrown a lot around a lot when it comes to the booking of tournaments on WWF television. <laughs> I thought this is probably the best overall tournament the company's ever done yeah we, we had a discussion about this on top rope nation when we reviewed this for our patreon show um you know i in terms of storytelling the one the deadly game at survivor series 98 i think works even though like all the individual matches are shit the matches suck and if you actually really look at the storyline a lot of it doesn't make any sense but it, it just it, it yeah it just worked because Everybody was over because everybody was over and the rock like his corporate champion was such a winner um, that that people, I guess, forgave it. But no, this is a really good. I want to talk about the booking of the tournament at the time. okay? um, so I'm like 12 years old going on 13. I understood. I thought for sure Bretton Luger was going to be the final here because they were they were programmed with each other coming off mania off that angle at the uh, WrestleMania 9 luncheon. Yeah. And we talked about the hit list promo, which was not unintentional obviously to add lex to that so i feel the same way i think that when this was designed i think which is odd because you're not going to actually advertise the match but you're going to get to brett versus lex in the final and you'll maybe maybe the idea is that something would would, uh you know would kind of come from that but no doesn't happen yeah luger and tatanka so of course it's brett over ramon in the first round uh we have the battle of the misters perfect over hughes with the lame (laughs) dq then you've got bigelow beating duggan duggan's last tv match i believe yeah, right I think he's done. Uh, and then Luger and Tatanka go to the dreaded 15. I don't know why. Th- this was the thing, too, because they did it with like Jake and Rude at WrestleMania 4. Why does the last match of the first round have to be an interminable 15-minute draw? I know. Do it like second or third. <laughs> you know? Or, well, because they don't want to kill the crowd early, I guess. But like also, why not just do a double DQ, like a brawl? Why do you have to have guys who don't like, who the fuck wants to send Luger and Tatanka out for 15? And besides, if they went to a time of draw, how come they didn't get three tries like perfect and doink? That's also a good point. We've established a time limit draw. Shouldn't have stayed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should, yeah. Okay. Um, here's the deal with Luger and Tatanka. First point I need to make. And we've said this before on the show. They, as 93 is rolling along, just keep coming up with these lame ways for Tatanka to stay undefeated. Right? Yeah. He, he beats Sean by countout at WrestleMania 9. So, okay, we want to keep him undefeated. Well, are we going to put the IC title on him? Nope. Even though nah. Meltzer reported that might have been an idea. It, it, it's not an idea. He beat the giant Gonzalez in qualifying on a DQ. Yeah, shitty DQ as well. Oh, that was an abysmal match. <laughs> and, then here, and then here, you know, it's a time limit draw. So, yes, technically Tatanka's still undefeated. But, like, here's a guy. Okay, you're desperate to keep him undefeated, but you're not giving him a real push. No, and then Luger lays him out at the end anyway. Yes. And then on the other side of the coin with Luger, you know, him not going to the final and losing to Brett. I wonder if a certain idea was already in Vince's head for July 4th. I absolutely think it was. Bruce Pritchard on his podcast did address this. He said he didn't know that that was the plan at this time, but Vince very well may have had it in his mind. Well, all things considered. Think of it this way. Well, 
No, you got to think of it this way. If they believed anything but what was going to, what does happen is going to happen, they wouldn't have put Brett with Lawler. Yes, that's the other point. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll talk. Right. We'll talk about this later on. This this will become a much more clear picture as we we go through the timeline of the end of Hulkamania. But yeah, that's I, I absolutely believe that, that that it was in their heads at this point. That, that, and that's probably why. Like, yeah, yeah. So uh, and of course that Luger Tatanka uh, time of draw sends Big Low to the final. As Liam mm-hmm. said, Brett beats Perfect in the lone semifinal match and just a a match of the year contender right there. And then Brett over Bigelow in the finals. So you would think, and you just touched on this, that winning the tournament might springboard Brett back into WF title contention. Speculation after Mania was that it was going to be Hulk versus Brett at SummerSlam with Brett going over. There is a tease in the WWF magazine about this where they talk about the strengths and weaknesses of Brett and Hulk. They're on opposite pages. Yeah. I, I, um, and <laughs> Dave Meltzer about a Hulk Hogan Bret Hart potential match. <laughs> Any notion there would be shooting involved is ridiculous. <laughs> Whatever their professional issues with each other might be, if Vince told Hulk to lie down for Bret, Hulk would do it. Ha! <laughs> Well, sure, sure. Yeah. They also, they also, in addition, in addition to WF magazine, uh, the, the, the side by side on the opposite pages, they do a feature in the August issue called I think it's like the Fox and the Hound, where it's talking about how Brett would need to wrestle to beat Hulk Hogan. So it's a couple of months in a row where they're teasing that match. But as we all know, instead, after winning the tournament final, Brett does not get back into WF title contention. He is attacked by Jerry Lawler, who'd mm-hmm. been vocal about King of the about the King of the Ring. This was good foreshadowing. It wasn't yeah, like so that. over the top that you knew it was coming. But Lawler, who has the King gimmick during all the qualifying matches, was complaining that this tournament shouldn't even happen. He's the real king of wrestling. So I, I liked that. And then. Yep. You know, Lawler confronts Bret Hart at the coronation ceremony. Um, Hart calls him Burger King. He says it the same way he called Mountain Jailbird. Like, you think, like, you know, <laughs> I think you're a Burger King. You're just a jailbird. Um, but the angle is great. It's amazing. With, and Lawler potatoes him with the fucking throne. Oh, so, stiffs um, the shit out of him. But and Lawler's presence also increased with the King's Court talking segment. So it's funny that they got rid of those gimmick talking segments they, they made a big deal about, but then they bring it back yeah. right away for Lawler. Um, your your thoughts on this angle, and we're going to talk more about the feud in part three between Brett and Lawler. But this was something that no one saw coming. It wasn't the direction Brett wanted, I'm sure, but it is quite great. It's phenomenal. It ends up being obviously as we'll talk about the best thing of the year. But this opening angle, like you say, I love the fact that they just, because again, he didn't, you know, Laura mentions it on the, on commentary through the weeks, but it's in that kind of way where it's just kind of, you know, it's, it's just the heel complaining as heels do. When he comes out and he actually confronts him after, you know, Gene, you know, crowns Brett. By the way, a pink, a pink robe for the winner is a bit of a dead giveaway, but that's, this. <laughs> never mind. Um, but anyway, so... Yeah. And Law just nails it. They're doing the burking chant. I li- I've always liked that you don't get to see the initial shot. You know, the crowd, you know, the, the pan- it's weird. Usually you want the perfect shot for this stuff. I like the fact that like, Lawler jumps him 
and you don't get to see it. And it's just like, oh, you dirty bastard. He nailed him. And then he, he levels that he stamps on the crown. He kicks him in the face after he says he's going to kiss his feet. I really, again, another reason why I love this show. There's not many pay-per-views really that don't have the happy ending during this period of time with the WWF. So this always stuck out to me as a kid. Like, but the good guy got the shit kicked out of him at the end. Like, Brett but just gets leveled. He, He's just lying on the stairs, and it just looks great. Yeah, they do a great job of, like, talking about how Bret Hart is, like, robbed in his moment of glory. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, you talk about the booking with, you know, doing an angle like this where the heel lays out a bit. It's more of that Memphis style of booking. Yeah. Jerry Jarrett is there at this time, and I know Bruce Pritchard wants to downplay it, but you cannot possibly with a straight face well maybe you can but you're you're lying <laughs> say that there was not a memphis style influence on this promotion around this time I mean, the booking just totally changes here in 93 you with more title changes the shock ones the angles on raw and then this here um yeah i mean i, I think brett lawler is the highlight of 1993 wwf quite frankly and uh it, it's a right turn that no one saw coming because what about Hart and Hogan, Liam? Wow. <laughs> well, yeah. well, well. It turns out Hulkamania is dead, well, for at least eight and a half years, and it dug its own grave. H- Hogan, obviously, he wanted to do things his way, and his way did not involve showing up on television. No, it didn't. So uh, not only did jobbing to Bret Hart not work for Hulk Hogan, uh, neither did defending his newly won title or making live <laughs> television appearances. Hogan's only TV presence between Mania and King of the Ring are these fucking horrible (laughs) on-set taped interviews with Jimmy Hart where Hogan comes off is so unlikable. Oh, he's he's, yeah, he's odious. And and it's the on-set for Thunder in Paradise, obviously, which is getting ready to go. And Hogan thinks is his next big career break. It's a fucking terrible TV show. (laughs) It got massive play in this country, by the way. I don't know if you know that. Thunder in Paradise was a Saturday afternoon feature, um, and it played for, like, over a year. And I had people who, uh, yeah, when when I, kind of in a local area where I lived at the time, when I mentioned wrestling, they were like, oh, yeah, like Hulk Hogan on Thunder in Paradise. I had that in my life. People referring to, uh, yeah, Shep. Shep Ramsey. (laughs) Shep Ramsey in another form, this time with a boat. Yeah, it sounds like the darkest days in Britain since 1776. My God. <laughs> it's fucking horrible. Not a good Thunder show. I don't think I watched more than two episodes of that show. Oh, it was it was on all the time. And you get all these cameos, like Jim Neidhart would be healed for a week, and then yeah. Gonzalez was on there for a week. Yeah, it just, ugh. okay. Uh, now, it's easy to say with the benefit of hindsight, when, where we know where Hogan's career goes, these interviews that he's doing, you know, Gene Okerlund's always on location with him. He he almost feels like NWO Hollywood Hogan, you know, to the unlikable yeah. part. Yeah. So at this point, we talked about how Hogan and Beefcake doing their kind of crazy, wacky, goopy style of promo. They thought that it was going to be cool. I feel like Hogan is, he's still along those lines, but he's he's so wanting to just put himself over desperately in these promos that the desperation that made Hollywood Hogan work is seeping through. The the constant references to being the five-time champion and how things are better than ever and how 
you know, you know, believe in Hulk Hogan. It's just it's so nauseating. Yeah, he, he constantly talking about his motorcycle. You know, he, he's yeah. just trying to act cool and failing. Uh, you know, and to the point that this is feels kind of like you know uh, the more you know, latter era Hogan, we even get the casual racism we would come to uh, know from the man uh, where he's like constantly talking about like stinky fish and rice that Yokozuna eats. That's bad. Yeah, the the shockwaves in Japan. Yeah, it's no good. This is the build to King of the Ring. Yeah, and by the way, at King of the Ring, Hogan cuts a promo. There's no ocean around here. There's no sneak attack. <laughs> no Pearl Harbor here, brother. Plenty of oh, Pearl Harbor God. references. Not sure. I, I can, you know, I'll just throw this out there now. Considering that this is what they were doing, I'm not sure why Hogan needed to be the champion for this period of time, Kyle. No. <laughs> just, just the, you know, just to no, put it out he, Yeah, no, he did not need to be. We, we went after be like a Hogan Yokozuna feud. We taught you, you threw it out there. Would have been kind of a way to bring Hogan back. You know, just have mm-hmm. him stick up for America and get a win, and then, you know, he can be kind of the 1B to, to Bret Hart's 1A, but that's not the way they did it, and it kind of fucked him. Uh, zero title defenses from the Hulkster between <laughs> WrestleMania and King of the Ring. So not only, not, not only is he not on television, he n- never shows up at Monday Night Raw. Here's this new show you're trying to get over. It's becoming the centerpiece TV show, the promotion. He never shows up on it live. No, he's got bad things to do. No, and he's not even defending the belt on the houses. His... <laughs> Only house show appearances were him and Beefcake versus Money Inc. running in, I believe, eight different markets from late May to early June. Yeah. Meltzer says only the show in the Meadowlands, which drew 11,000, can be considered a success. Philly and Pittsburgh both did less than the previous times in the market without Hogan. Yeah. Think about that. Most of these shows draw around 3,000 people, which Dave says means Hogan's name means, quote, Nothing at this point. Ooh. Two days before King of the Ring in Richmond, 1,800 oh. Hogan Beefcake Money Inc. tag match. Now, in fairness, Dave, I remember he does make the point of saying that Beefcake and Money Inc., although I think he actually singles out IRS, specifically Beefcake and IRS are, are, are not, not going to draw a damn thing and that they're an anchor around Hogan's potential drawing power. But it does mean that Hogan's use... Is has been worthless. It has been, and, and well, and you bring it back, and it's why we talk about this was such a dumb idea. I don't know who agreed. Like, did Hogan just not care? And I mean, we talked about well, maybe he just wanted to work with people he's familiar with and people that weren't going to take away his own heat. But at the same time, they were taking away his own heat because they just sucked. I mean, Dibiase yeah. doesn't suck, but like you know, as a character, think, though, he was very tired because of the money Yank Act wasn't working. No, yo, IRS killed him in '92. Yeah. I right, so I mean, there's no doubt about it whatsoever, but man, 1800 in Richmond. So here's like the big thing to draw them back. Uh, uh, let me try to take take a look at some of these other markets where they were at here before King of the Ring. Do 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 do. I've got that open. So Richmond was 2 days before that was 1800 um Albany, New York, 3000. I mentioned that was kind of around the average. 3,300 in Minneapolis. Hogan. In Minneapolis. Perhaps you heard about how his career um, took off in the AWA. 6,500 in Manitoba, in Winnipeg. They do live in Canada. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, I mean, but again, I, I they they were doing like big business in Winnipeg. Previous Winnipeg used to be like monster business because it was close to Minnesota and stuff. Uh, Sergeant Slaughter, it should be noted, was like doing guest referee bits for some oh, of these yeah. matches. Um, we'll talk more about because because they keep wrestling Hogan and Beefcake and Money Inc. after the pay per view, and I watched one of the matches and it is fucking abysmal. It's so lazy. It's such a it, it's lazy worse, effort. It, it's worse than WrestleMania. Uh, easily, easily. Worse. Okay, you want to you want to hate Hulk Hogan even more, Liam? <laughs> Go for it. Apparently, after WrestleMania nine between King of the Ring, he was politicking to have Brutus Beefcake moved up the card ahead of both Bret Hart and Mister Perfect on the babyface side. When I read this, I got really upset. <laughs> There is just absolutely no justifiable reason at all for anybody with a pair of eyes or a set of ears to think that Bruce Beefcake needs to be above Mr. Perfect, Bret Hart. I, I, it's WCW 94 is what Hogan wants. And, and, and he'd eventually get it. He would get it. He would get it. Um... But Vince wasn't going to let that happen here, thankfully. No, and in fact, Beefcake, they, there was a speculation, I think it was in The Observer, Beefcake was going to cut Yokozuna's hair at King of the Ring because yeah. Dave was thinking Hogan was going to win. That obviously just doesn't happen. And Beefcake just kind of disappears from TV. He's not even part of those Thunder and Paradise interviews that we ripped on. No, he's, he's nowhere to be seen. He just, and he, and he, he's not in he's not King uh, of the Ring. Hogan's corner. Yeah, he's just, he's just gone. So, you know, that's a, uh, a sign that something may be coming here. But where Hulk really fucked himself, Liam, was working a show for New Japan on May 3rd. This was something I had no idea happened until, like, a few years ago. Oh, but okay. Hogan, uh, he works against the great Muda, mm-hmm. okay? And he does an interview with the press afterwards. Five times World Wrestling Federation champion. This belt... It's just a toy. It's like a trinket on a Christmas tree, like an ornament. The belt that I want is the one that the great Muta has, the IWGP belt. Because when Hulk Hogan wins the IWGP championship, which he should have right now, it will prove that New Japan Pro Wrestling and Hulk Hogan is the greatest, the greatest partners in the world because I want all the great wrestlers to come to me, and I want them to come to Japan where I can wrestle and not bullshit. I want to wrestle and prove that I'm the best. Not only did he say that he considers New Japan his wrestling home, but he said the WWF belt is like a Honda and the IWGP belt is like a Rolls Royce. <laughs> yeah, what a diss to Honda to the Japanese fans, by the way. It, that is true. Shouldn't he, <laughs> he, shouldn't he have said Chevrolet? What a bad, bad term to use, yeah. So I have a question because this is like a oh. big – oh, go ahead. And of course, calls the, the the most controversial thing. He calls the WF belt like a trinket, doesn't he? Like, yeah, that's right. A, 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 a trinket. It's like a Christmas tree ornament compared to the real world title. And then he just fucking <laughs> bangs on about how he wants to wrestle Anoki. Okay, so we've got a WF champion that isn't defending his belt, isn't appearing live on television, isn't drawing, <laughs> and just insulted the promotion. Other than that, I was the play, Mrs. Lincoln. But <laughs> I, here, I want to get into this this New Japan interview. Okay. Bruce Pritchard. Oh, said, let's hear yeah. it. So, so Conrad brought it up, and and Conrad was awful in that episode. To be honest with you, I, I he just he was clearly not in a mood that day to like pick any fights with Bruce. 
So it was just like he was giving him outs with every question. And they basically settled on the talking point. Oh, well, there was no Internet. You know, the Internet wasn't a big thing back then. And Hulk was just promoting his work in New Japan. So that's what you would say as Hulk Hogan, the New Japan wrestler. Here's what I want to say. So do you think this like because Bruce denied that this screwed Hogan in in the WF's office size. But do you think that because this was reported later, Meltzer was the one who did it, said Hulk may have known by May 3rd that he was losing the title King of the Ring. And that's why he said what he did. Do you think that's the case, or what do you think? No, I don't think he knows by then. I really don't think he thinks that then. I think that he... I, I will say this. It should be pointed out how hot New Japan was at this time. They were doing, like, really good business. And so mm-hmm. I think that it was kind of important to Hogan the visual optics of having you know, I think that he really wanted to be a centerpiece of the hot New Japan promotion. I think at one point, didn't he try and claim that like he tried to get away with this by saying that he was mistranslated or misinterpreted until the footage showed plain as day. Yeah. He said. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He denied it at first, but like Meltzer already had like the video <laughs> and like and and I think like yeah WWF had already been made aware of it. So yeah, he, there was no backing away from what he said for sure. Yeah, no, what a prick. And so he just, you know, you think, you think to yourself, if he really, I, I think that where this probably did him no favors is that it just smells like Hogan's does not have the promotion's best interests at heart. When you look at the lack of television presence, the lack of wanting to work with people that aren't beefcake, mm-hmm. and and then this, if it's me and I'm Vince, I'm just here like. You want you you got me to drop everything to give you the belt back, and and you know with the with under the guise that like you're back and that you're going to lead the charge and we're going to make things the way that they were, and at the same time you're going to go and just treat it so secondary in Japan. And I understand the whole thing of like two separate markets, not a crossover anyway. So what does it matter? But it's just probably another chip. And you know how Vince's ego is, you know, mm-hmm. with stuff like this. It's like he he. he could not have liked that he had given Hogan so much and got this back. Yeah, just nothing in return. And, you know, we talked about this on the last episode that it feels like as soon as they're done giving the belt back to Hogan, they wish they hadn't done it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So with that, at King of the Ring, Hogan does an unceremonious job to Yokozuna, and Yokozuna's the champion again. Hulkamania Um, is dead, says Bobby Heenan. Let's talk about the match and the finish here. So (laughs) it had been reported that, you know, you talk about the New Japan link, that Tiger Hattori was going to be the ref. That does not happen. Instead, we get this business with the photographer. But as soon as it's reported that Tiger Hattori is going to be the ref, I think alarm bells went off among newsletter readers and certainly Dave and Wade that there was maybe going to be some sort of fuck finish. Yeah. Because you don't do that. like unless there's going to be a fuck finish. Um, thoughts on the match? Let's talk about that before we go to the fallout. Uh, it's fairly standard Hogan fair. It's again strange because it's in the middle of the show. So there's a very kind of weird feel to it anyway. Um, well, shades of his loss to The Undertaker at Survivor Series. They exactly. The show. Exactly. And so I... 
the finish, I, I, I find it hard to, to judge this because, again, as a kid, I just thought it was wild. Like a fucking a camera shot fire into Hulk Hogan's face. This sounds like, I remember hearing it at school, like, this sounds fucking great. <laughs> like, I, yeah. really want, I really want to see this. And then you see it, and, you know, this will be a reference lost to, to our American listeners. But to those in Britain, he looks like, like Fizzgog, for those who know who that is. Um, <laughs> And 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 so basically, it's it's just this bizarre situation where like, and then he he bonsai drops him after the match, beats him with a leg drop, which I quite liked. Beats him mm-hmm. with a leg drop, bonsai drops him after the match. They sell it like, yep, yeah, that's pretty. That was pretty convincing. Like it was weird that they they were pushing it as quite convincing, despite the obvious shady nature of the finish. It in almost all aspects, it's like okay, you would expect the rematch. Yeah. So okay, this is where we need to go here with this do you think like it like when you watch it and know that hogan's on his way out of the promotion it feels kind of like a burial with that Mm -hmm. perspective right because like the announcers they really harp on the fact that he couldn't slam them that we've never seen hulkamania like this he's laid out there's really no update on his condition Mm -hmm. so you know, with that, it's like, oh, man, they just sent him packing. But, you know, Dave and Wade in their reviews were speculating about the idea that this could lead to a Hogan-Yoko rematch at SummerSlam. Yeah, I I feel like this, in Hogan's mind, is probably as much to do with the European tour coming up, would be my guess. Because the timeline of events, which we'll talk about in a second, if you don't mind me taking a little bit of time to kind of go through things. Um, yeah, go, go, go. Yeah, so this this is probably the time. So, obviously, looking at Bret Hart's book, looking at the old observers, doing a little bit of research, when you cross these sources over, it tells a bit of an interesting story. So, on May 24th, according to Bret Hart, in Halifax, that's when Bret and Hogan do the photo shoot, the famed photo shoot of Bret and Hogan doing the tug of war with the WWF title belt, which Bret says they were told was for SummerSlam. This is May 24th. King of the Ring is June 13th, just to give a timeline. May 29th, five days after they do the photo shoot, Vince calls Brett and tells him that he's getting the belt back and moving Hogan into the vaunted Babe Ruth position <laughs> and that he was dreading... Babyface Hulk- Emeritus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that he dreaded telling Hogan that that's what he was going to do. That's what he told Brett, okay? May 29th. Then, 10 days later... So this is around June 7th, June 8th. A week Vince before ca- King of the Ring. The week before. Vince calls Brett and tells him that Hogan has refused to put him over for the title, saying that he wasn't in his league and that Yoko was going to get the belt instead at King of the Ring. However, June 7th, 8th, as we mentioned, the week before King of the Ring, that's the time that cited in The Observer is when Hogan told Vince he was pulling himself and his crew off the future dates and was out of SummerSlam. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so far it's all one way traffic on this story. And then we get to King of the ring. So while the show is going on, (laughs) this is, this makes me love Bret Hart even more. The show's still on the air. Hogan has lost to Yokozuna, but Bret hasn't wrestled Bam Bam yet. Bret goes into Hogan's dressing room and tells him to go and fuck himself (laughs) (laughs) for not, for not putting him over. Hogan says that Brett doesn't know the whole story, but Brett again tells him to fuck off and, and storms off. Vince later that day grills Brett for like his unprofessionalism for doing this. Next day, oh, go ahead. I, it should be noted, didn't Brett Hart 
draw the cartoon of Beefcake yeah. at King of the Ring too. Yeah, so you can talk talk about that. Yeah, so he drew, he drew a cartoon on the old blackboard of um, Beefcake with his face in Hogan's ass. <laughs> this is backstage for all the boys. Yeah, this is just to get a pop. So you know, you can tell that Brett's not not pleased with the way things are going around here. So obviously, Brett's been told that Hogan thinks he's not in his league. He's told Hogan to fuck himself. The next day, Hogan talks to Brett and tells him Brett was supposed to get the belt back at SummerSlam, but Vince called him and changed the SummerSlam match to non-title. Meaning, when you read between the lines, he'd already de- Vince had decided to go to Yoko and then another babyface that wasn't Brett. Because if he wanted the belt off Hogan, but, but it you know, was, in theory, planning on doing Brett and Hogan... Yoko was going to need something else, which is why mm-hmm. I think the Lex plan was already in play before King of the Ring. Now, Hogan says when he was told that the match was going to be changed to a non-title match, he had no interest in doing that match and told him that he was going to leave because he saw, I'm not going to be the top baby face. I'm going to have this match with Brett, where I'm probably going to you know, lose in theory, because what's the point otherwise? Why would you even do this match if it's not for the title? It makes no sense. I, I don't know that. Either. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. Like, it, that. That's I've always thought that was a dumb idea, like Bret Hart and Hulk Hogan. That makes no sense why you would do that match not as a passing of the torch for the WWE title. No, it has to be for the belt. There's no, there's no other justifiable logical reason to do the match. Bret, remembering the photo shoot and what Vince had told him about Hogan refusing to put him over, repeats it to Hogan, at which point Hogan takes Bret with him to see Vince. And he tells Vince the exact same thing he just told Bret about how it was supposed to be them at SummerSlam. Bret was supposed to win... But then it was, you know, he'd made it a non-title match. And when he repeated it, Vince looked at Brett and said, I never, ever said it would be a title match. Yeah. Which, so again, go ahead. Which makes it look like Terry was getting the blame from Vince for the fact that Vince had already changed his mind on Brett and Hogan as the title match. It's quite amusingly similar to 97, actually, when Vince yes. decides to take the belt from Sean to put it on Sid on a win, and Sean no longer wants to do the match with Brett because it's secondary, and why would, you, why would he do it? Oh, I was going to say, it's also similar to 97 when <laughs> Brett's in a meeting with Vince and just starts, like, it, it, it just hitting him with facts of things that just wow everyone with an earshot. <laughs> All the promises that Vince had broken to him. Oh, yeah. So but there you go. Yeah, and, and so, so what do you think? So do we? That makes no sense. The non-title thing. He so this is what makes no sense about it is, and yeah, I, I, I even wonder if Vince even thought it was going to happen. He had to know that Hogan was going to say no to doing a, a non-title job to Bret Hart. He had to know. He's, he's he, he if, if he got it, great. But he had to know that Hogan wasn't going to go for that. So to me. He called, you know, he tells Brett that he's going to put the belt on him. Ten days passes. He has enough time to think about it, to come up with another plan, to kind of take stock of things. He's already decided to go away from Hogan by the time he's had that conversation with Brett. But what happens in that ten days is he decides he doesn't want to go to Brett either. And so he thinks, "Mm, okay, it's not going to be Hogan. It's not going to be Brett. It's going to have to be somebody else. And that somebody else is going to have to be a heel. So with with the whole business of Hogan taking Brett to Vince's office, like, do you think Vince and Hogan were in on it? No, I think and like work. No, I don't. I think I think that Hogan was mad because he knew that Vince was playing them both off against each other. And Vince, when he had to come down to it, had to tell Brett. He had to say to Brett, "I never said it would be a title match, Brett." Even though he had done and said that he would be putting the belt on him. So I and think they've done he, a photo shoot. 
Yeah, and they'd done a photo shoot to set it up. So Vince was basically trying to blame Hogan for the fact that he didn't want to put the belt back on Brett. Uh-huh. And it, of course, ends up being Hogan's last TV match, King of the Ring, for yeah. WWF until WrestleMania 18 when he would uh, wrestle The Rock. Uh, it should be noted, okay, that this is not it for Hogan at King of the Ring. While we, nope. we were debating, does it feel like a burial or not? Um, they still talk about him. Um, Hogan and Hart appear on the cover of the WF Spotlight magazine, mm, which yes, I uh, that. was re- it released in September. Mr. Nanny, which was an October release, gets promoted on WF television. And Hogan keeps wrestling on the house shows. It's him and Beefcake against Money Inc. <laughs> Still! Yes. Including the night after King of the Ring. And that's the match that we watched on our compilation with Slaughter's Referee. And it is one of the worst fucking matches I've ever seen in my life. It's poor. It's piss poor. Nobody is trying. And it, you know what made it worse? Is that there was no commentary. And like the crowd wasn't. <laughs> like it's just bad, man. I mean... You know, there are matches that I shit on, and I'm like, what the fuck is Meltzer giving this his high rate for? I mean, this was like just such a – this is the kind of poor match you just don't see anymore. Yeah, and and the crowd, it was, it was remarkable to see the crowd so quiet for a Hogan match. Mm-hmm. Now, Hogan, he did get a reaction to King of the Ring. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it's, like we talked about at WrestleMania 9, the crowd – the pay-per-view audience does still seem to view Hogan as, as the biggest star. But, yeah, these this house show run is just dying on the vine. Uh, there is – uh, a match two nights after King of the Ring in Huntington, West Virginia, which is where the giant Gonzalez confrontation happens. That has been, uh, you know, a picture that has made the rounds on the internet in recent years. Which and, is weird when you think about it, because they had no desire to, you know, Hogan had already said that he was not going to, he was gone after the tour. Yeah, so it's weird that they would even tease that. It, you know, it, listening to Bruce... Uh, the Something to Wrestle podcast and just kind of reading through. It feels like, and the finish at King of the Ring, it feels like Vince wants to leave openings for Hogan yeah. if he wants to come back, but it's just clearly not working and we're going to go away from it, but you know, maybe we'll kiss and make up and we can do these things down the road. But, you know, once he leaves, there's no use for Gonzalez, and so he's out of there and then, you know. Um, uh, you talk about phoning it in, though. How about a match in Chicago, Hogan and Beefcake against Money, Inc., where Horace Grant gets involved? <laughs> I read about this. <laughs> like, Hogan's just bullshitting with Horace Grant. For those who don't follow the NBA, <laughs> Horace Grant was the power forward of the, of the Chicago yes, Bulls during the Bulls' first three-peat in uh, 91 through 93. Yeah, so it's a higher priority to the Hawks that are just kind of, uh, you know pow wow with his buddies at uh, the other side of the barricade just the same thing doesn't he like, like the next night like he, he just like starts, starts chilling with the fans or something like that in the front row while beefcake's getting worked over by money inc yeah it's just not curious like yeah let me find some celebrities just it, it's bad hogan's last actual match august 6th in sheffield england your neck was a ten thousand mm-hmm. seats they actually did good business on this tour yeah um now do you and and credit was given to hogan We've talked about this before that, well, Brett had been in a key position, obviously, at SummerSlam 92 over in Europe and was a proven draw over there. Does, like, do some of these numbers we saw from this summer European tour justify the decision in any way to put the belt back on Hogan at Mania 9? 
I'd say no, personally, because I think that they would have done the same without doing that. Yeah, I mean, we talked about, I mean, they, they did great business in 92. We went through all those numbers and, and yeah. you know, the, the Mania Tour right after, or the European Tour right after Mania 9 did well and Hogan wasn't even on that. Um, what was the WWF's actual world title plan for 93, do you think? Do you think they're oh, just flying by the seat of their pants here? Fucking hell, yeah. They, I, I believe that they don't have a clue. I think that, I think that Vince believed he'll go with brett until something better comes along that he can identify he was i i feel that he always thought that brett was a guy to just be steady and that he was never the guy that he was going to go all the way with um and then i think that he like i said i think he was just going to wait to see what came along i think he was going to try a little bit with brett and see what happened see if it worked i don't think that he had a plan I think that he had a, a blueprint of potential guys that Brett could work with, but that he was always looking for something better. Yeah, and, you know, this is something that maybe would be better served to talk about, like, once we get to WrestleMania 10 and once Vince actually mm. does go to Brett. But, you know, th this all could have been avoided if they would have done the thing that we had talked about for us, where they just build Brett to winning the title at WrestleMania 9. Yeah. Hogan comes back with something more interesting than what they did. They're in that 1A, 1B role, and maybe you do the match at WrestleMania 10 where Hogan puts over Brett. Um, but, you know, obviously they didn't. And the beauty, if you had done it that way and Hogan leaves, it doesn't make Brett look so kind of foolish. Yeah, it doesn't look like such a fucking idiot. And when you actually look at, like, again, talk about the plan for 93, it's like, when you look at WrestleMania 9, which, again, we talked about in part 2A, is just a, a show filled with just cheap finishes. Heels got protected pretty well at WrestleMania. The babyface is not so much. You know? Mm -hmm. Like, which certainly makes you think. And they had Luger in the wings for Brett at the start of the year. They knew that they were probably going to go to that. So I do think that the, the show, you know, the, the year was structured for Brett. Unless and and he just wanted something else to come along. I don't believe that Yoko would have beaten him in the original if, if Hogan hadn't shown up. I don't think they would have done that. Um, so yeah, it's a it's it's a strange one. Let's let's put it that way. I I don't know if there's been many years since the national expansion at this point where there was such a wait and see approach to the the, the decision making for the world title. Yeah, and by the way, it also needs to be pointed out that Hulk Hogan does not job to Yokozuna on the European tour. <laughs> nah, don't do he, that. He, he's winning by DQ. Um, almost every match, it's Hulk Hogan defeated WWF World Champion Yokozuna via disqualification when Mr. Fuji interfered. Yeah, yeah, he's not doing the job. Every single, so he's not jobbing either. So he did the job on pay-per-view, but yeah, they're doing Hogan and Yoko uh, on the European tour, and it's all DQ wins for the Hulkster, I'm counting seven of them at this point it looks like he worked seven dates so but yeah hulk hogan uh let's not bury the lead here this is the most important thing you said we've been kind of building to it since the start of this series in 1990 hogan being gone from w yeah. television yeah um, so oh, you, you, you know what i have to bring up this shitty you know before we move i'm so glad that you were gonna say this because i wanted to say this too <laughs> This fucking article in the WF magazine, because we can't, we have to talk about the photo finish, don't we? Yes, we do. We got to talk about the photo finish. We got to talk about Bruce Pritchard's explanation for, for, uh, for why they put the belt on Hogan at Mania Nine. Okay, okay, yeah. Let's go back to all this. All right. So, the, the, well, which should we hit first? 
Let's go. Uh, let's go to the magazine. <laughs> let's okay. go to the photo finish. Let's go chronologically. So, I don't remember this ever being talked about on television, but this is the <laughs> fan forum article in the oh, good Lord. November 93 issue of WF Magazine. Now, remember, it says November 93, but it, it's covering like months previous. So, I mean, yeah. on the on the cover of this magazine was actually Lex Luger celebrating at SummerSlam. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But um, the fan forum article says, everyone who witnessed the King of the Ring this past summer will probably never forget the manner in which Yokozuna defeated Hulk Hogan for the WF title. Yokozuna with assistance from an imposter disguised as a photographer who answered to the name Mervyn Smith pinned the Hulkster after the lensman's camera sprayed fire in Hulk's eyes. As a result, the Federation was thrown into a state of disarray. How could Yokozuna and his manager, Mr. Fuji, resort to such treachery? How could the Federation's hierarchy allow it to stand? When would another great American, such as Lex Luger, challenge <laughs> Yokozuna for the title. These questions, of course, have all been answered. However, at the time, our September issue hit the newsstands. We wanted to know what you had to say about Mervyn Smith and his real identity. Here are some of the res your responses. So first of all, they never mentioned Mervyn Smith on television, did they? No, no. They, I never heard the name until you told me this. Okay. Th now, these fan responses are incredible. I think <laughs> Mervyn Smith is Jim Cornette. Why else would Fuji have hired him as Yokozuna's official American spokesman before SummerSlam? That was Gene Ginnarette from Liverpool, New York. Okay, and th th this is unbelievable. What Scott Berman of uh, California had to say. I think Smith is a real photographer. All the Hulkamaniacs don't want to believe that Yokozuna beat Hogan fair and square. <laughs> what is this? What is this? Justin Smith, who uh, WF Magazine points out is no relation to Mervyn from uh, Austin, Texas, says, no, I would God. like to get to the bottom of this photographer thing. First, he shouldn't have ever stepped onto the ring apron to take a picture. Besides, he looked just plain devious. <laughs> Jeff Ingling said it was Bobby Heenan. He was on commentary. Yeah, so that is like physically impossible. <laughs> Don't know what they're teaching in... Shackleby, Minnesota. You know what else? You know what else is impossible, Kyle? What? These what? people knowing the name Mervyn Smith since it never been announced on television before, and no one they hadn't even mentioned it in the. I'm assuming they didn't mention it in the magazine the previous month. No, all these people. Yeah, all these yeah. people saying, "I, I want to know who this Mervyn Smith." Well, who the fuck is Mervyn Smith to you? Well, Charles uh, Russell thinks it was one of Hulk Hogan's old enemies in disguise. I think Hogan injured this guy in the past, and he came back to haunt him. Oh. My God. Now, here's something. They say Philly, face-hating Philly. Well, Donna DG Giancomo takes that to a new level. I would like to know. She, now, she doesn't know it's Mervyn Smith. I would like to know who the photographer was at the King of the Ring tournament so I can shake his hand and thank him a million times? <laughs> An odd thing to write in the magazine, but okay. Uh, Matthew Schlitter from Montreal he just thinks it was someone who wanted to get even with the Hulkster. And the magazine needs to investigate Mervyn. Definitely. Uh, William William Cawthron says he thinks it was Johnny Polo. I, I mean, they don't really remotely look alike. <laughs> Ro Robert Roby, Dale City, Virginia, thought it was IRS. I mean, you know, <laughs> can, can we not get a better lineup of candidates? 
Kill Bobby Heenan, IRS, Johnny Polo, Bobby, and well, someone Bobby. from his past, so presumably maybe Earthquake. Who knows? Bobby, well, Bobby Heenan is the worst because the man was doing comedy. Was about, um, <laughs> Kim Kammer of Casco Township in Michigan thinks Mervyn Smith was connected to Doink the Clown. After all, Doink has many, quote, relatives, if you know what I mean. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> that's, that's a bit, bit of a reach. Yeah. Ben Samara. Hulk Hogan is my all-time favorite wrestler. I just think he lost the title in an unfair way at King of the Ring. He's just bottom-lining it there. <laughs> yeah. Hogan should get a rematch, says Matthew Sakelga of Seymour, Connecticut, because the oh, Federation yeah. belt is made for him. Well, there would be no rematch. That's fan forum, by the way, WF Magazine. That is that is an atrocious bit of writing. <laughs> That is absolutely, that stinks from here to this day, 30 years on. I mean, no, I mean, wow, I don't even know what to say. It was, of course, Harvey Whippleman, by the way. Yes, it was downtown Bruno. Okay, so there, there's Fan Forum. Um, you want to talk about some other things in here? Yeah, so I, I, was, I was keen uh, to talk about the Bruce Pritchard line, because Bruce, as and, and you had caught this as well, when he was claiming what the reason was, he'd mentioned, as we alluded to uh, on part 2A, that the Grateful Dead concert had done great replay buys, and they were trying to do something similar via word of mouth. But he also said that Hulk Hogan needed the belt for the European tour that was happening after WrestleMania. Now, with the European tour that we've been talking about is after King of the Ring, yes. that Hogan was on. However, there's a slight inconsistency with the story that a, a rather simple fact check can verify, Kyle. <laughs> Yes, he wasn't on the European tour after Mania. <laughs> As a, yeah. But you know who was? Bret Hart. Yeah. And it drew well. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's fucking great. And, I, and, and although, although, and finally, I get to say this. this: this tour is the one with the dreaded UK Rampage '93 that ends up being released on tape. For those who have never seen. UK Rampage 93. This is one of the worst releases to Coliseum Video. That, wait, is this... Uh, th this is on the on Peacock slash the network, because I think I watched it, right? Yes, Did it's we on We talked about this. Okay, okay. It's on there. So, you, gotta, you know... Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell a personal story first, okay? Okay, now so, this is now just, just to get not to confuse people. This is after WrestleMania nine. It's after WrestleMania nine. Hogan's the okay. champion, but he's not on the tour. And so I, around this time, shortly late, shortly after this, I was in a Woolworths back when that was a, a store here in England, and uh, and I was looking to buy a VHS as I often did, and I chose the 1993 Royal Rumble. And I took the the case the way that it was done at the time because I guess people were thieves in this country and they couldn't trust them. They own, only the boxes of the VHS was were out on the stands and they'd actually have the tapes behind the counter. So you'd have to take the case to the to the counter to buy it, and they put the tape in there for you. So we do that. I got 1993 Royal Rumble. I'm thrilled. Uh, we walk back to the car, and as I get in the car, I open up the case to see sitting inside the case UK Rampage 93. Oh boy! They'd put the wrong tape in. So, uh, thankfully, I'd immediately I caught this right as I got in the car, and and I got a I'll tip of the cap to my mom here. She was taking no shit. She was saying, "Okay, back we go." So, out the car we go. We march all the way back to the counter. We say, "You put the wrong tape in the box." Can we have the 1993 Royal Rumble? 
Lady looks behind the counter and says, we don't have that. We must have given it away accidentally. Would you like to keep UK Rampage 93? And so I say, well, hang on a second. And I walk over to the, to the box that was sitting on the, st- the stand. And I looked at the card. I looked at the card that features Fatu versus Brian Nobbs, Doink the Clown versus Kamala, Mr. Perfect versus Samu, Bob Backlund versus Damian Demento, Typhoon versus the Brooklyn Brawler, Crush versus Shawn Michaels, and a main event of Lex Luger versus Jim Duggan. And I said, no, I would not like this video. And I left with nothing that day. Even as a dumb seven-year-old kid, this card is hideous. I wanted nothing to do with it. I didn't want it in my eyeballs. I never have. This is a terrible show. Have you and ever if that seen li- it? If you- oh, my God. I, well, I saw... I've, I've never watched it in full because I refuse, but I have seen sprinkles. Because I think this is Steve... Is it Steve Kerner's doink on this show? I've got a yes. feeling it is. And I remember yes. I, 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 I saw... Steve Kerner's doink and thought, nope, and that was it. I didn't watch the rest of the show. So I've never seen this show. I watched it for the first time a few weeks ago, and it is atrocious. <laughs> I, 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 I remarked to you after Money in the Bank that you guys over in the UK just love the WWF. And man, this card had to put that to the test 30 years ago. <laughs> I mean, this was in Sheffield, England. It was a sellout of 12,000 televised live on Sky Sports. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, got big advertising. I remember during the WrestleMania 9 broadcast, they advertised this pretty hard. Yeah, so I mean... Including, wow. with, including with clips of Sid, for some reason. I remember that vividly. Now, uh, I was also... There was a UK Rampage 92 where the card may have actually been even more dire. Uh, yeah, so that is, that is also another release uh, from the company. Bret Hart's on the front of the box. And yes, that card is, is pretty ranked. Let's take a look, shall we, at the results here. So we got Tatanka beating Skinner. Legion of Doom defeat Colonel Mustafa and Dino Bravo. That's unbelievable. <laughs> that is an unbelievable match in 92. 92. Sid Justice. Colonel Mustafa and Dino Bravo as a tag team. This is April 92. So this is 19th of April. So this is post Mania 8. So Sid, of course, is still working the tour after failing his piss test. And he defeats The Undertaker by count out on this show. You get, Michael, you get Savage and Michaels. So that's something. Uh, oh, Mounty, I think that's a pretty good match, too. Yeah, it is. Cool. It is. Yeah. Mounty, Mounty beats Virgil. Brett beats Rick Martel. Jim Duggan beats the Reaper Man by DQ. He can't do a job. And in the main event, the British Bulldog defeats IRS. <laughs> Wait, I can't remember. I think Michael's... So there is a really good Savage Michaels match. I can't remember if it's in Munich, though, or that one. I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to... I'm, I'm scrambling to think right there. Mm. I don't have that in front of me. But I, I know also, one this, one, this one's also in Sheffield. Okay, okay. So, yes, it's poor, the poor, those poor people in Sheffield. Okay. So, again, it goes back to the plan of, like, you know, Bruce is kind of trying to give the company, like, that, that just makes no sense. The whole idea that Hogan needed the belt for the, the Europeans. No. Although he did draw, he did, although the numbers were pretty big here in, the, in this post-King of the Ring tour, and I don't know if that can be attributed to Hogan or not, but... again it it just seemed like they didn't know what the fuck they were doing they were grasping at straws bruce is making up excuses after the fact like he always does um but the end result is hulk hogan's gone right yeah yeah and we need to talk about this and i know vince would later regret it liam but letting hogan go was the best thing for all parties right 
it was absolutely the best thing for the business overall. But the, I think the bizarre thing about this story is that we never really even got to see what Hogan could have meant in 1993. Like, don't, don't you think that's like a weird, like, like this whole thing of like, we put the belt on Hogan, but he's never around. Hogan's back, but he's working with guys that can't draw. He's never put in a position to really draw big money. Like, if Hogan challenged Yoko for the belt at King of the Ring, as opposed to defending it after he killed him in like 10 seconds at WrestleMania, and it didn't show up for, for any of the TVs, we would have had a better indicator of whether Hogan had any steam left. Not fucking about with IRS and the barber. You know, all you know, all we can tell from this is that the days of just putting Hogan on the card and the casual fans running to the show because Hogan's there, th- yeah. those days, those days are over. Those days are totally over. But Hogan's ability as a difference maker in the WWF, I mean, it clearly wasn't strong enough considering what he wanted, which was more control than ever. Um, mm-hmm. Like you say, I'm not sure that Vince would say it was for the best, but of course it was ultimately. It's just a shame that Vince essentially fucked the company for two years with the Hogan movement mania just to get no value out of it, and then realize that it was probably for the best. Yeah, let's talk about the King of the Ring buy rate real quick. We haven't mentioned yeah. that. It was yeah. 245000 ish That was kind of right on par with what they had done. Um, well, it was actually less than Rumble 90. You know, we talked about they did 430-ish at WrestleMania 9, so it's way down from that. But, of course, it's, you know, it's going to yeah, be gonna be WrestleMania. 300,000 they did it at the Rumble 93, 250 at Survivor Series. So this was a I mean this was a low number mm-hmm. with Hogan as the champion, but to your point you're right. I I don't the booking just did no one any favors cuz you know, he's married to these just shitty people like Brutus Beefcake <laughs> and IRS. So those house it's just a match no one wants to see yeah. on the houses. So you don't really know and, and you know, Hogan and Yoko the dynamic in the build was so fucked up because Hogan had already beaten him and it was just sort of like, oh, well, now can I beat him for real? And that's not really a money-drawing angle. It was not like, Yo- the, not- it was Yokozuna basically going for revenge. Yeah, and, and Hogan's the one who's got the belt already. So it's like it completely like loses the idea of like, can Hogan, you know, can Hogan be the guy to beat the monster? Which is what Hogan's bread and butter is. Not just being the guy who just, I, I, you know everything to do with Hogan in 1993 is a scenario that was almost designed to not draw money, like the way that it was done. Obviously it was, they wanted to draw money, but like it was, like it was done in the exact opposite way that you would expect they would, if they were really thinking about how they were trying to make money with Hulk Hogan, which is just bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And you know, I mean, this has been an issue with like declining results with Hulk going back to 90, right? I mean, he, he, he showed up the warrior in the summer of 90 with the earthquake program. But after that, like the magic was gone. Yeah, it was. I mean, I I think that's the story here that the magic is like, obviously 93, whether you're talking WrestleMania nine and everything that falls out could have been booked better, should have been booked better. But like the magic is clearly gone with Hogan. And to your point, they had been trying to find something besides Hogan for over three years now. This, yeah, I mean, th- th- let's, 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 you know, to be a bit self referential here, the entire reason we're talking about the 90s is because of the, uh, the original thing that me and you wanted to talk about was the fact that in 1990, they had decided that Hogan was stale and that Hogan mm-hmm. was not bringing them in the way that he was and they wanted to try something different. And here now, we're at the point where in 1993, it's it's funny that Hogan, who has the rep for being a smart guy, and, and when you look at, you know, um, 
some, you know, certain business decisions he's made over the years. He's that there are some moves he's made that are very, very smart, and then there are some things mm-hmm. he's done that are just fucking completely idiotic. But I feel like in '93 he was being so cautious that he actually it was almost like a self fulfilling prophecy that it was going to fail because he didn't want to put himself in a position to go all in and fail. And so he, you end up with this halfway house of, we'll play it safe. I'm not really responsible. If, if, you know, I'm on the card and I'm back, but I'm in, I'm in a tag team thing. I'm not on top. But then I'm going to be on top. I'm not going to be around if the TV is not good. And then I'll work, you know, I'll, I'll be in the main event for the, yeah, it's just, it feels like he's, he's he, in an attempt to play it safe and to give himself as, as few potential chances for failure as possible. It's a complete self-fulfilling prophecy that it fails. Yeah, so we, I want to go back to the question. I think it was, you know, I said it was the best thing for both parties. And then you tacked on it. Well, it was the best thing for the business. You're completely right. Hogan going because like, here's the thing, like, if Hogan had stuck around, like, I just, I don't, what does that look like? It, you know, what, is there a realistic scenario where Hogan puts over Bret Hart at some point, whether it's SummerSlam 93, <laughs> WrestleMania 10, whatever, and stays in the WWF? Possibly, because Hogan knows the difference between losing and putting him over in and putting the guy in his place, as we saw at Mania Six, it's not the same thing. And he could have done yes. that with Brett very, very easily. But Hogan isn't actually going to put somebody else in the position to be number one ever. He never did until he has absolutely no choice, and he had a choice here. You know, it made more sense for him with you know Thunder in Paradise and this you know TV aspirations, you know Hollywood. It, it, it made it made sense to show them a tape of him in New Japan where they got tons of people there and he looks like he's just moved to japan and he's still a, a massively popular sensation yeah there's a lot of talk you know in the observer when he leaves that it does not help hogan's true biggest goal which at this point was still to break into hollywood and television and and stay there it did not help if the perception was that he had no pull with his wrestling audience anymore yeah and that's kind of like the story of hulk yeah, you know, since '91, right? He clearly wants to branch out, but his star is fading within wrestling circles. In his own world, yeah. So it's kind of this this weird dynamic where he got so hot at his peak that these other avenues are calling for him because they think that it can it can there's something marketable there because he's got this big fan base. But now that the fan base is going, he's trying to pull away more than ever. And of course, this does end up with him doing shittier and shittier films. That oh just God! Some of those cheaper and worse. The Secret Agent Club for anybody who's ever seen that. <laughs> you know, just that there's some just the, the most turgid offerings that you know stank up British television, <laughs> as I say for for years. Mister Nanny got played so much; it's hideous. But uh, oh. yeah, so I, and, and that's it. I feel like you know, so much of of this was Hogan trying to kind of you know, infuse himself as well and, and help that perception that he was still a difference maker. And when it didn't look like that was going to be the case, and he and as soon as he caught onto the fact that Vince had figured that out as well, he, he was out of there. I mean, the, the writing was on the wall with those house show numbers we talked about, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean Hulk, that's, that's, that's Hulk a big is deal. no dummy. I mean, he's got to be like, oh, fuck. This, like, you know, yeah. this makes me look bad. No one's responding. I, even, even if it is a shit program. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, again, you look at the two European tours, the one after Mania is not on, the one he is on after King of the Ring. Sheffield's selling out regardless. 
yeah. of whether he's on. I mean, you know, you could point to, oh, hey, well, Sheffield sold out for him and Yoko. Fucking sold out for UK Rampage 93, a show that Liam didn't want to watch for free. <laughs> Dug in his legs. Yes. But, you know, again, you know, because Hogan leaves, it, you know, and, and I don't know when Vince, you know, this is something I guess we'll have to come back to. But I don't know when Vince, like, really figures out, like, it's over. Like, I don't know, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's spring of 94 when he when he takes the WCW deal. I guess at that point he knows it's fucking over. But, like, <laughs> like he has to try new things. He can't just have in the back of mind, well, all right, we'll, you know, kind of half-ass this with Brett. We can always go back to Hogan. Like, it's yeah. like, you know, the, the fact that he he no longer could go back to Hogan forced him to try new things. For a while, it obviously wasn't working, you know throughout 93, 94, 95, 96. But, you know, obviously, you know, we don't get Steve Austin. Do we get, like, Steve Austin and the Attitude Era if Hulk Hogan just kind of, like, sticks around forever? I'm not sure what this promotion looks like if Hulk Hogan sticks around forever. Like, like it's fascinating to think yeah. about because, like, I mean, okay. Like, does Hogan turn heel in the WWF? Could he have turned heel in the WWF like he did in WCW? Oh, uh, I. Oof. Oh man, there's so much that has to happen for him to turn heel. Like he, he had to be, like totally ineffective as a difference maker in WCW before he was able to be committed to do that. You know, and that wasn't going to be for a little and, while yet. It, it, it was going to take some time. But but the difference is why, and people always miss this point. Like the reason, like that Hogan. I shouldn't say people always miss this because some people catch on to it. But like the reason that Hogan as a heel worked so well, so instantaneously, <laughs> WCW. It's because that there was a large portion of that fan they base hated that him anyway. Like <laughs> and early... they wanted, they want. I mean, look. You know, you talk about being best for the business. Hogan, we don't want. We may not want to admit it. WCW business wise did get out of the shitter. When he comes in in 94, yeah. We, yeah. we we may not like the on-screen product. And then eventually by 90, early 96, because he was also coming in at a point, you know, this goes back to Hogan Smarts. He came into a promotion that was doing absolutely fucking nothing. So yeah. any anything he did would be seen as an improvement. And he got that sweetheart deal. Now you get to early 96. He's kind of all of a sudden wasn't as valuable because Nitro gets going the Hall, Hall and Nash deal takes off and Hogan all of a sudden for the first time in forever has no real power. And he has to sort of acquiesce to the heel turn, which the fans want. But, you know, you, you look at when he came back in 2002 to the WWF, what happens like almost immediately they turn him babyface. Yeah. Like Ho yeah. Hogan as a heel, and it, you know, never really worked in the WWF. I, I wonder like, you talk about so many things need to happen. Would it have had to be, okay, you've got the Austin thing going and like Hogan is with Vince McMahon. Yeah. Cause it's like, what you think is like for, for it to happen. And this is, this is where I think that it does. It, it never does happen because if, if Hogan just stays there the whole time in what universe is somebody going to get hot enough I say yes. to threaten his position. And the yes. reason I say that is because even though there's a precedent here, we can say, okay, the warrior is the precedent, right? He got really hot and he was seen as a viable replacement. But as we saw in reality, the way that this played out, like you mentioned with 996, the reason it happened 
was because he, as time went by in 95 and the live crowds of Nitro revealed that Hulk Hogan was not as popular as he used to be and that he wasn't as popular as he looked because they were, they were doing a lot of tapings down south and there's been, there'd be an awful lot of four fingers shooting up in the air when Hulk Hogan came out. Mm-hmm. You know, they were fucking horseman fans. They loved it when Hogan got the shit kicked out of him sometimes. There were some markets where Hogan was super popular still, and that's great. But it had to be a situation where Hogan Hogan had to mean less than another guy. And as Hogan's value diminished, what we saw in WCW was that he went into overprotection mode, which is kind of what we're starting to see here in 93, where he becomes so careful about his image. And he's so, I mean, honestly, for those who haven't seen, like early 96, Nitro. um, Hogan is on top. Oh my God. It's 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 some of the worst shit you'll ever see in terms of self- aggrandizing you know, serving one person not the promotion I mean, stuff you'll the, see the tower of doom i mean it, it's him yeah. and, i mean it's him i mean you know if hogan had his way he would have gone one on eight in the cage yeah. and one but he's like ah you know okay i'll take savage we'll just do it two <laughs> on eight yeah so it's like you know, he you know, he was laying out yeah you know, all the horsemen are begging off from him on his own and it's just like it's just so ridiculous how overprotected he how oh, over- oh, although i think pillman was doing that on purpose to make hogan look like an idiot well he should have been <laughs> yeah yeah, and he, yeah, again, he wants to squash Pillman, you know, that famous yeah. story when Pillman was red hot. And so you get, you know, that's that's the Hogan mentality. When it, it, it had to be the point where Hogan was so, he was so, I'll say meaningless, but he was worth so little in a positive environment that you could get past the point where he goes into overprotection mode and, and hurts the other potential candidates for his spot as the number one guy before he could then turn on and, and and work with the number one guy and i think that there's there's so many things that have to happen that i think that ultimately hogan probably would have bolted anyway before it got to that point and he would have always considered his options he would not have let it get to that point in the yeah, wwe I mean, at that point yeah. yeah i mean he just didn't think bret hart i mean obviously they weren't going to do a match where hogan beat bret hart i, I mean vince isn't that dumb but like you know hogan just didn't think hart was worth his time and but like if somebody was hot enough that he hogan wanted to work hogan was going to want to win like that's like hogan would not i mean he probably would have wanted to just beat steve austin as a heel (laughs) like hogan as a baby face steve austin as a heel if like when austin was ascending right yeah or or just look what happens with sting yeah or yeah he would just yeah not put over i mean it's funny because like you look at the bret hart it's so funny okay like Steve Austin, obviously, this is not news to anybody. His big moment in is like the turning point is Mania 13, right? And mm-hmm. it's ironic because he loses the match, but on yeah. the, on that night, he clearly becomes the biggest star in the promotion. You look at like Austin working with Brett versus what an ascendant Austin would have been like working with Hogan. Oh my God. Hogan probably would have put him over, but in a way where Austin would not have like, look like the biggest star of the promotion hogan would have looked like the would have you know been patting himself on the back for putting him over and let's face it if the promotion was getting hot he would have done everything and he was in the in the top mix at the time it was getting hot he would have done everything in his power to be the top guy when the company was getting hot again because that's what he did yeah so i the end of the day is like okay we talk you know because um 
Justin Joint messaged me uh, about after, you know, we laid out the, the Mania 9 plans. And he's like, oh, you know, like, do you think that's even possible that, like, you know, Brett beats Hogan? And I was like, no, not really. <laughs> he, there's no way to fly. I mean, you, you can put him like, I mean, you can hold a gun to him backstage and say, you, you better. But I, I, I think that's that, that's typically frowned upon. But, you know, and, and then the thing is, what do you do with Brett, like, moving forward and, like, you know, and Hogan's always going to be there kind of stealing the spotlight, too. Yeah. Like, whatever he's doing, is it really going to be, like, Hogan's not going to be comfortable being secondary to another babyface. Well, he yeah, that's it. That's, the, it. Like, that's, that's, that, that's the problem. We've, yeah. we've, we've seen this. We have seen the president. We saw Hogan be the center of attention when Warrior was the champion. We talked about it in, in great detail in the 1990 series. He, he leaves the promotion, eventually comes back, immediately makes the focus himself with a belt. When it doesn't work, when he gets a sniff that Vince wants to do something else and make somebody else the focus, he gets out of Dodge again. The precedent's there. Yeah. So it's a new day in the WWF. Uh, no Hulk Hogan. Bret Hart is married to Jerry Lawler, of all people. We have a heel champion, the rare heel champion in WWF. Yeah. And I guess we need a new baby face, don't we, Liam? We certainly do, Kyle. And he, need, and he needs to love America, maybe <laughs> as much as he loves himself. <laughs> maybe more. Yes, uh, but that maybe is part, more. That is going to be part three when we talk about the uh, WWF embarking on a, uh, I guess, the, their Hulk Hogan-less era, <laughs> right? And what they do, the moves that were made, uh, there and the kind of hard right turn that is made uh, for SummerSlam 1993. Not yet the biggest party of the summer, but uh, <laughs> they try to make well, it a big party at the end. They, they, balloons they, and all. Yeah. They brought the balloons. <laughs> they brought the balloons for a party, but they, you know. No uh, whatever. party. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's part three. Is there anything else you would like to share or forever hold your peace on the first six months of the WWF? I guess we technically no. would be we technically went beyond the first six months because Hogan, um, he, like I said, his last actual match is August sixth. But uh, we're sort of done now with television the first half yeah. of the year. Yeah, I think that we've, we've we've captured that pretty well. I think that what we what we end up with to kind of move out of part two and into part three, we mentioned before about Hulk Hogan being gone. Was it a positive for all parties? I guess ultimately the answer you can draw which will tie us to part three, is that when Vince makes the mental connection that Hogan cannot be the guy that they bank on going forward, it does allow Vince the freedom to go all in with his next attempt, which is what and we're going to see. He does. And yes, we started in 1990 with the search for the next Hulk Hogan. And by God, we're going to try that again. <laughs> in part three, the next Hulk Hogan. Spoiler alert, it does not work out. Uh, but, again, that is a different show for a different day. I think I, I, I think that puts a bow on it, buddy. I think it does, too. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Kyle Ross, thank you so much once again for joining me on this Odyssey. I love 1993. I hope this was as much fun for you as it was for me, man. Absolutely. And we will be right back with you, folks. Part three is coming, so stay tuned. For the great Kyle Ross... I am Liam O'Rourke, and we are out of here. We'll talk to you again real soon. Hogan is helpless! 